Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Stiff. All around my neck here, I'm stiff. Mm-hmm. From throwing my head back and laughing. Uh, what was the name I of the... I think it's definitely a dangerous picture. Yes, what was the name of the movie? It was called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Ah, yes, Stanley Kramer's new spectacular comedy. Uh, I got a spectacular neck here I want to tell you about. In other words... Without any warning, this picture is unleashed upon the audience. It's got all these comedians in it, see? And Cinerama, Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean, Phil Silvers, Thomas Terry. Terry Thomas. Him too, and Jonathan Winter, see? Well, you're on the floor. Then you think you're going to get a rest from laughing, right? Right. Forget it. There's nowhere to get your breath. We laughed till we wept. And the hollering. Big pardon? People around me were hollering for mercy, clutching at one another. You mean it's I that... think Kramer went too far with his thing. Yes, you mean it's that funny from beginning to end? Well, I wouldn't know about the end. At the three-quarter mark, I had to be assisted into the lobby. Brace yourselves for Stanley Kramer's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Los Angeles premiere November 7th, Pacific Cinerama Theater. Mail orders now are called MAD 1108. Yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have many ways to talk about the things inside, so hurry up and get your seats. Tonight you are not prepared for the insanity, hilarity, and absurdity that dwells behind the curtain. How many comedy stars can fit on a single screen? As many as Stanley Kramer can conjure up with only his imagination to guide him for your show this evening. It's stupendous. It's outrageous. It's audacious. It's a mad, 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 mad world. So see the show here in our special Cinerama Dome for this evening and stay behind for a discussion after the picture ends for a talk to delight the earbuds. A United Airlines jet lands in Los Angeles, launching the biggest entertainment airlift in motion picture history. The world's press, some 300 newsmen from four continents, Arrive for the Hollywood premiere of Stanley Kramer's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. There was a certain amount of money buried down in this park. Now, I suggest that we quietly get into our cars, and then when we get down there, we dig up the money, providing that there is some money there. There's only one way to figure it, and that is every man for himself. And so begins the maddest, wildest, zaniest chase ever filmed as our merrymakers race across country by land, by sea, by air. For somewhere, there's a fortune in buried treasure. Which one of our Mad World comedy stars will be the first to reach it? Now, where have I always told you that the smiler hid the dough? Where? Uh, Right there. The world's critics go stark raving mad, mad, mad. The wildest chase comedy on record, raved the New York Journal-American. Nobody's going to get me up in the air. A smash. Has more laughs than any other comedy in the history of the screen, raved the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. Why can't you have a little confidence in me? 
to miss this. Wildest comedy ever filmed, added the Boston Record American. Help! Help! Reggie, say something! Everything you've heard is true. It's the biggest entertainment that ever hit the screen with laughter. Oh! Left runner! No! No, no, no! Wild and hilarious all the way. It's a mad, 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 mad world is everything its extravagant title suggests, says the New York Times. A wham-doodle, humdinger, stemwinder, said the New York World Telegram and Sun. Great Britain's Manchester Guardian applauded with exuberant, exhilarating, triumphant, marvelous, wild, prodigious slapstick, exclaimed the New York Post. Everyone who's ever been funny is in it. Our traffic is so congested, mass confusion on wheels. Detroit is a trite. What they'll do in Detroit is make bigger automobiles. So be a happy fellow. Be a clown boy. Punch and bellow. Get off the shelf and enjoy yourself. It's a mad, 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 mad. It's a mad. Now that you've seen the film, we will get to the talk of the day. In 1963, the message director, one Stanley Kramer, assembled more comedy stars than there are at Sardi's or the Brown Derby, colliding them with elaborate stunt teams, masterful special effects, and sound design fit only for kings, all wrapped around the glorious wide landscape of a 70-millimeter print that proved to be the largest comedy then and possibly to this day. Just what makes it stick in our minds so much that we can't get it off that pedestal that it stands upon? Well, that's one of the many things we will discuss today. We cannot do it alone, so here with us is a writer, director, cinematographer, whose works include When She Showed Up, a dramedy now available to rent on Amazon and Vimeo. He is also the owner of an olive dog named Olive the Dog. Please welcome Brandon Rose. Thanks, buddy. What's, uh, what's, 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 uh, what's going on? Not much. How are you? You are you are in you are in the East Coast, so you are getting hit harder than anybody in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so, but I'm very happy that you took time out of your evening to, uh, to sit down and talk about the longest comedy ever made. Oh, dude, this is great. I mean, you know, you know, I moved up to the you know mountains in New Hampshire, so there's nobody around. So this is actually me getting human interaction. So this is wonderful. <laughs> You, 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 you haven't, it should be clear. You really haven't seen many humans beyond any family. If that for the, how long now, like the the whole time? Oh, no, no. I've been, I've been working off and on, but like, you know, I'll do two or three jobs and then I'm like, Ooh, this is still kind of icky. Like people aren't doing what they're (laughs) supposed to be doing. So I'll just go back Uh, up to the mountains and then like, I'll sort of, you get this little image in your head of me just like peeking over the mountain <laughs> to be like, is it still, is it safe down there? No, still not. You're just holding, you're holding up a white flag. Yeah. <laughs> like I give up. Send down a courier pigeon to see how bad it is. <laughs> oh my God. And then somebody eats the pigeon and sends back the bones to you. You're just like, this is serious. I think they're zombies now. That's ro- World War Z down there. 
Oh God, maybe Brad Pitt can save you. Um, well, I, I'm going to tell you, thank you for, um, agreeing to do this. Um, uh, a little bit of back history. We work together on a lot of projects. <laughs> so yes, we have. This is yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's um there's um there's been a lot of time for us to know each other. But this is one thing I will say I didn't know about you until I sent you the request for yesteryear. Is that amongst the films you put down were it's a mad 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 world, and I'm like really cool because nobody put that on their list when they sent them back to me and i'm like finally a chance to talk about old-timey comedians <laughs> but um uh before that though um i wanted to talk to you a little bit so you you do have a film that people can watch on amazon and vimeo is that correct that is correct um it's called when she showed up and it's a you know little dramedy that uh we put together actually you know zach worked on that as well um yeah <laughs> it was but, a fun uh, one day <laughs> yeah it, but it was a strong one day Right. Yes, it was very strong. Don't yes, sell I remember short. getting out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> you were still there, um, and you put in the time. Yep, that is true. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a lovely, lovely film um, that you that you took a while to assemble, but once you got it through, like it looked beautiful, and it's in black and white too. So hey, you know that's up my alley. <laughs> yeah, it it was supposed to be released in black and white. I sent it to a bunch of festivals, and nobody got back to me because it was in black and white. Yeah. So yeah, I so released like the, put back. Yeah. yeah. And it was like it was really weird to get like, st- like straight up like festivals that denied it before, mm-hmm. when it was black and white. And I said, you know, I sent them over the different version, the other one, and they were like, "Oh wow, this is wonderful." I'm like, "Oh, that's terrible." <laughs> I'm so conflicted <laughs> about this. <laughs> there's no, there's no artistry put behind it. No, I mean, like, I mean, because like everything up until I saw the the version that's available, like I was just seeing all these previews. I'm like, man, this is this is like Kevin Smith stuff right here. <laughs> well, on Vimeo, if you buy it on Vimeo, you can get the black and yeah. white version with it. Which is the one that I, which is the one that I looked at, because when you when when we were working on it, you told me it was going to be in black and white. So when I finally watched it on Vimeo, I'm like, well, this is the correct version, clearly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, which which it's weird to have that within the scope of like you're you're not the only filmmaker who's had to do that obviously frank darabont had to do it with the mist so well i mean there's one of my favorite movies is um uh it happened one night so yeah and that was sort of a little bit of the inspiration for when she showed up so it was just kind of like you know felt right to do it that way um yeah but we're not talking about that that movie today we're talking about (laughs) another gem Yes, but I will tell you that as this show goes along, I'm getting you back on to talk some Capra, Gable, and Colbert because that is a um, um, that is a treasure of a film. Um, uh, a, a I still I own it on DVD. I still have not picked up that beautiful Criterion that you own. Oh, um, so good. <laughs> I know. I know it's supposed to be one of the best Criterions out there. Um, but no, we are here to talk about it's a mad, mad, mad world. Um, it's four mads. So if I didn't say four mads there, I apologize. Um, but this is a film that. Uh, I, I will give my brief history on it real quickly. Uh, when I first saw this film, it was under the uh, impression by my father that the Three Stooges were in it. Uh, and he's technically right. Um, but um, as you are a six to seven year old kid watching this film and being set down for two hours and 43 minutes, you are you are wondering where the Three Stooges are the entire time. Thankfully, there's so much stuff that happens in this film that even if I wasn't fl- following the plot of why they were after this money or what it what it all meant or what was Spencer Tracy doing there, it was just insanity and chaos and action and stunts all over the place. So it kept your attention regardless of your ability to analyze a plot. 
Um, now, as I got older and started uh, becoming fans of fan of the comedians that are in this movie, uh, ranging all across the gamut, um, that's obviously where my appreciation for it has grown. But Brandon, I will ask you, um, it's kind of a two-parter question. Um, how did you first discover it's a mad, 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 mad world? And um, what is your impression of golden age Hollywood when you think of it today? Well, I mean, um, so actually it's kind of, it's very similar to yours. My dad is a massive Three Stooges fan, massive. So when I was like 13, 14, I was like, ah, well, you know, this kind of looks pretty cool. I always, I watched a couple um, Sid Caesar movies as a kid because my grandfather liked him. And I was like, yep. I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll try this out. It's got four mads on it. Must be great. Um, yep. So I threw it in. And then I realized it was like almost three hours long. And I was like, all right, let's see how this goes. It's like a mini series at this point. But uh, I watched it and I was like, this movie is amazing. Like from start to finish, it's absolute chaos. Like they, like the, one of the, like, pretty much the opening shot is the guy just v- launching himself off the cliff like <laughs> crashing the car they all stop they check on him and they're like within five minutes of that they were like turning on each other and trying to get this money i'm like this movie's amazing it just gets right to it just yep. shows... it doesn't stop either no Once it doesn't it, starts, it does not stop no and not I... even for a second and it ruined <laughs> it ruined me because i'm like well all good movies have to be almost three hours long three, like, three hours long that i mean that's how it has to go um, wait, wait, Brandon, that's why Martin Scorsese made The Irishman three and a half hours long. Uh, he said that, well, Brandon's only going to give a shit if the, if the movie's only three hours or more. So I've, I've got to make it long. I've got to make it fucking long. Okay, Netflix, I'll, I'll sell my soul to you, whatever you want me to do. Uh, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure I think I'm the only guy that watched The Irishman and got up and I was yeah. like, all right, I felt good. Everybody else had a stretch. I'm like, this is, I'm like, this was easy. I'm like, this is great. Is there like a second one coming? Like, is this is Netflix. There must be a second one coming. Um, Irishman season two. <laughs> yeah. Should have been. Oh, God. I mean, they cancel, all, they cancel all the good shows after three seasons. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag bring back MST3K, please. Oh. Um, and, but, um, but yeah, no. So that, that is a, that, that is a wonderful way to be introduced to it. And also to kind of like. Uh, get an impression of where uh where where your love of film will come from because like you know we've when we talk about this film what's interesting is is that it spawned off a lot of different like offshoots of it in terms of like people trying to do the same thing get a huge cast together and make it about one simple plot and uh but none of them seem to in my mind seem to match what this film is able to do thanks in large part to the things that are outside the comedy realm um that end up adding to it um and i mean like we'll talk about it a bunch in here but like the stunt work in this movie is fucking insane oh my god it's crazy like it's fucking insane (laughs) like if you come in to this movie just watching the chase scenes you wouldn't know it's a comedy Mm-hmm. You'd have, yeah, you, you you would you'd have no idea the amount you'd think it's an action movie, <laughs> the, exactly. Like the stunt driving with the, like that big moving truck that uh, uh, Jonathan Winters was driving in the movie. It's like mm-hmm. what? <laughs> it's like are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, this isn't a comedy at all. This is like a Bond film. I'm like what? This is absolutely insane. And again, it also ruined me because it's like wonderful like genre blending. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, a comedy should have everything in it. Like people selling each other out, like a little bit of like slapstick, a little bit like on the nose stuff, which is appropriate. And then like, you know, mm-hmm. all this 
insane action, and then you always have to have the finale be even crazier than the rest of the movie. Yeah, and 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 on top of that, you there is character development in this film, which feels odd because with the cast as stacked as it is, it's hard to give anybody room for character development in this film. Um, obviously, Spencer Tracy gets the juiciest role in the film, hands <laughs> down, in terms of a character, um, and everybody else in the film. They're not one dimensional, but they're but they don't have as many dimensions as Tracy does. Um, and uh, I mean, Kramer talked about this in interviews like the, the, it's a movie that's very episodic. Um, so it's not like the, the plot is very basic so that you can set up these set pieces and these <laughs> comedic moments that are the selling point of this. Basically, it's like it's a, it's an evening out at the theater, like literally like you are you are you were there for two hours and 45 minutes. Um, I mean, if you were there at the premiere, you were there for more than three hours. Um, and that's another point of discussion we'll talk about because like one of the things about this film is, is that it, um, it was a Cinerama film, um, but it wasn't filmed for Cinerama. And yet the Cinerama dome was built for this movie. The one in the Cinerama dome yep. in LA yeah. was built for this movie. Um, and uh, what's interesting within that is, is that Cinerama is a process um, very much championed by Daryl F. Zanuck and uh, 20th Century Fox. That That's a studio that used to be around, guys. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it's now called 20th Century Studios, which is ironic because that's what it was before they merged with Fox in the early 20s. Um, I'm not going to get into that argument today. <laughs> We're here to talk about this mad, mad, mad world. Um, but no, so the Cinerama process was basically, it was set up as such that you would... Um, point three different projectors at three different points in the theater and it would create a wide uh, scope um, if you're thinking of those curved TVs right now that's basically it except you had to coordinate it with projectors so if one projector's out of sync the picture doesn't look right it's similar to the 3d stuff that I've talked about with Marshall before um, and so this film though was basically enlarged from its 65 millimeter yeah. print and kind of blown up a bit to hit that curvature um, and yet it is still one of those prime examples of the what, what what they would have considered a gimmick back then. But now it's its own art form. It's an art form that still gets utilized to this day, whether it's through Nolan or Tarantino or Spielberg, even going back and saying, here, here's a 70 millimeter print of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then you're all set to go. Um, and uh and so within this, like, it's interesting that one of the most technologically challenging films ever in cinema's history is a comedy. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I think that has, you know, uh, partly due to Stanley Kramer making the movie, right? So, I mean, yeah, it, he wasn't just like a comedy guy. He's like a real filmmaker. So it's like yes. he put that so aesthetic he, to it. Exactly. So here's a question I have for you, Brandon, now that you've mentioned Mr. Kramer. What knowledge do you have of Stanley Kramer beyond this movie? Um, not at the time that you discovered Mad 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 World, but like in general, like today. Like, what is your knowledge of him? What beyond like his movies? Yeah. Well, no, like well, oh, of his movies beyond this movie. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, he did. I uh, guess who's coming to dinner? Right. Yep, he did. Yeah, and that's probably like probably my favorite Stanley Kramer movie. Um, mm -hmm. But even you know beyond this movie, almost every actor. You know that he's worked with or in actress has mentioned how um he's kind of like a actor's director where mm -hmm. you know he sort of he sort of like you know ushers the story along but like you know and he's sort of married to the script but he always gives them a little bit of room to like make it their own 
which is like something that I really admire. Um, yep. So like really what I mostly know about Stanley Kramer is kind of like his style. Um, I know there's another big, big movie that he did that I should know the name of. And it's really terrible that I can't remember it. Um, yeah, it's, it is kind of terrible because you would um, you would definitely know him. Um, there's a couple of things he did mainly as a producer, but I think the big one. Um, well, there's a couple of big ones, obviously. They're all throughout the 60s, but I would I would argue that the big one would be Judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah, that's um, it. That's is, the one. <laughs> yeah, which Judgment at Nuremberg uh, is a film that, um, I mean, one, is very relevant today yeah. because we can't learn our shit. But more importantly, no. uh, it, is a, it is a courtroom drama. <laughs> no, um, and, we haven't learned and, from and, our mistakes. No, no, we haven't, Brandon. I'm sorry. We, I'm, I'm sorry, we haven't. Yeah, you know the guys that they're trying at Nuremberg. Yeah, they're back. Oh, um, but yeah, um, but anyway, Judgment at Nuremberg, the movie, which also has Spencer Tracy in it, uh, is a is a drama film. Um, and uh, this is the film that gives Maximilian Chanel his big debut in American cinema, and uh, it's also a big, big thing for Judy Garland. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar for that movie. So, and, and prior to um, prior to that, prior to Judgment at Nuremberg, even he has the Defiant Ones on the beach, Inherit the Wind, the Pride and the Passion. This is a guy who he was he was deemed by everyone around him as the guy who made the Message movies. Always had oh, yeah. something to yeah. say. Always a very big thing about the human condition, about world condition, um, societal affairs. Um, when he started in the industry, he worked his way up um, as a, starting as a producer. So among the things that he produced. Um, were High Noon, mm-hmm. um, The Member of the Wedding, The Wild One, um, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, <laughs> um, which is a Dr. Seuss-written <laughs> script. And the movie is... Um, you've Have you seen this movie, Brandon? <laughs> no, no, I have not it, seen that one. You know, that that might be one to bring over to you when I come back to visit you one day when the, when the pandemic rests, because uh, that's a hell of a trip. Um, but he also produced The Kane Mutiny, um, which is a uh, a big, big um, latter-day Humphrey Bogart movie before he passed away. And also, you know, you got Jose Ferrer, Von Johnson, Fred mm-hmm. McMurray in that. Um, so he worked his way up as a producer in this film, uh, in films, and then got into directing with the film um, not a, not as a stranger, which had Frank Sinatra and Olivia De Havilland and Robert Mitchum in it. You know, I did um, see that. I'm like, it's dude. There's so many like, you know, I mean, you know about like you know golden. Actually, this kind of ties back to your second question, right? About like that two part of that you had about like my opinion of golden age of Hollywood, um, like everybody was working like prolifically back then <laughs> like they just get done and then they're on to something else i mean you know a lot of these people want to contract like with studios and they, like you go if you try to go through someone's whole like filmography and like their body of work you just block out three weeks yeah oh i, I would argue block out months yeah for some of these cats like some of these guys who are like side characters that you want to see in other movies mm-hmm. they have like over 150 under their belt like ralph bellamy was fucking loaded as was don amici um but but you're right like no because they're under contract because they are basically uh they're making a like i always go back to um julius epstein the writer of casablanca explained it in the casablanca doc where he's just like they were making a picture a week that's 52 pictures a year, like making and releasing a picture a week. Um, a lot of the films that you see from the golden age of Hollywood took about 
like if it was a B level movie, it was taking about like maybe two to three weeks to make. Um, so like they were, uh, you know, an assembly line process to the point mm-hmm. where um, they would have something each week for the theater. That's why there's so many titles from the era that we haven't even discovered um, in, our, in ourselves. Like I've seen like the smallest fa- fraction of them. Uh, and th- there's so many more to dive into. And a lot of them that don't exist anymore because of, shitty preservation or no preservation whatsoever um and this film actually falls into a preservation uh debacle but not as big as um other ones that will be discussed on this show down the line um so like but you know we we've worked together in film in the sense that like within the sense of like independent filmmaking um you know like we've like so with with what we do we're not even working at half the pace that these guys had to back in the day. Like they were like cramming it out super fast. Oh, no um, way, man. Not even close And Yeah. You know, that's, that sort of ties into like my, like, you know, my view of go- the golden age of Hollywood. Right. It's like, it's amazing that back then you could have just, you know, done 52 movies right in a year. I mean, you, a, a person's not probably doing that, not a director, but um, obviously, but you're able to just crank out things and just, get better at at your craft like exponentially Mm -hmm. faster than you can now it's like yeah between raising money and then like development and filming it and then the post and like especially if you're doing everything on like a shoestring budget where you're wearing multiple hats it's takes a little bit longer to get all that stuff done right and it's and it's a it's a thing that when you look at the directors of this era um, the ones that I tend to admire, uh, apart from the select auteurs that I enjoy or the people who fall under that label, if you believe in it, because not everybody does, um, it's um, uh, it's the workhorse directors that I tend to appreciate a lot. So like Michael Curtiz was not really considered an artist by the new wave, but uh, I mean, somebody who directed both Casablanca and Adventures of Robin Hood has more than enough clout to establish himself as an artist because you're basically genre hopping like crazy. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, and, and that's that and angels with dirty faces, which is my favorite of the gangster movies, uh, hands down that's directed by him within the same time of a frame of time that he would make stuff like dark victory and Adventures of Robin Hood. So this is that was a cat who did a bunch, and and Kramer was no different because Kramer, you know, even when working as a producer, you know, he's working through a bunch of different genres. This also means that he had enough time to study how actors worked mm-hmm. and what to say and not to say to them. Um, like he produced Death of a Salesman, uh, the the uh, film adaptation of it that um, Laszlo Benedict directed. Um, and so if you're having if you're getting to watch Frederick March and Kevin McCarthy do their thing, you're learning already how to do some stuff. And, oh, yeah. I mean, high noon alone. You've watched Gary Cooper do some stuff. You're like, OK, I know how to deal with a big star. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. <laughs> I also know how to deal with Lloyd Bridges, <laughs> <laughs> which and Lon Chaney, uh, if I can get him awake because he was usually drunk. Um, but, you know, so that was the time, so, man. You know, how, how are you going to get through the day? <laughs> yeah, how are you going to become a wolf man if you don't have a bunch of liquor in you? I mean, honestly. Um, but so here's here's where we're going to jump into it's a mad 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 world because uh would you believe Brandon that this film is the result of a of a petty bet? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? I would. 
I mean, okay. I think people have bet on things that have pit like, you know, as you know, pettier than this and for bigger stakes, I would imagine. Yep. So I'm going to tell you um, an anecdote from um, Stanley Kramer's widow at two, in the 2012 uh, last 70 millimeter road show. Um, they had a Q and a with all the surviving cast members and her there and, um, and the video is available on the Criterion Collection edition of this film. <laughs> she said that Stanley was having lunch with one Bosley Crowther. Now, if you're not familiar with Bosley Crowther, but the audience might be because I've bitched about him for tw- nearly 25 episodes of The Shanley Silhouette. He's my least favorite critic of the era. Ah. But I will say oh, Bosley Crowther was, he was, though, one of the most respected critics of his era, working for the New York Times. Um, you know, he, he did know what he was doing. I just don't like his pithiness. Anyway, he um, he was apparently having dinner with, or like lunch or dinner with Kramer, and he told Kramer, like, you know, Kramer, we get around, us critics here, we get around and we gossip about you guys, which first of all, don't, don't fucking do that. Second of all, um, <laughs> he, uh, he basically said, like, and we all agreed on one thing, Stanley. Um, you could pretty much make anything you want, but there's one thing you'll never be able to make. And, that's a, and Stanley Kramer said, what? And Crowther replied, a comedy. And <laughs> what, what an now, asshole. <laughs> now, so, um, so, so, Stanley Kramer's widow suggests that he was just kind of like, oh, well, you know, and so obviously he was going to go prove him wrong. But my imagination goes into the realm of Stanley Kramer slamming the table going like, I'm going to show you exactly what I'm going to fucking do. And that's when he got up, called, (laughs) called William Rose and said, write me the funniest fucking thing you can. (laughs) I don't give a shit. Make it super huge and super long so I can shove it in Bosley's face. Oh, dude, it was was probably even like it was it probably hit him. Like he was probably blindsided, right? He was probably driving home. He was probably like two minutes from the house, and he was like, "You know, that son of a bitch insulted me. That son of a bitch. You know what? Oh, it's a way I'm gonna get. It's a way. I'm gonna get everybody that I can think of to be in this movie. Anyone that isn't booked is gonna get put in this. It's, it's I'm gonna like get the McGruber. three Stooges and then not let them be Stooges. That's how many people I'm gonna put in this movie. He, it's it's like MacGruber when he obsesses over the guy who uh, who who uh, nearly ran him over, and he keeps repeating that license plate number and then <laughs> writing it down in that notebook. <laughs> oh. It's like he's just writing down the names of every comedian he can think of, going like, "I'll show that oh, motherfucker." Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and that's what and you that's, do. That's exactly what you do. Oh yeah, exactly. There's no other option except to just to go for petty broke here in this case. Um, but yeah, this 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 film basically arises as uh, as part of a, or at least Kramer's involvement with it stems off of a bet. Um, but as far as the writing is concerned, William Rose is kind of the unsung hero of um, it's a mad 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 world when it comes to uh, its success or uh, when we talk about it today. Um, but William Rose was a uh, a screenwriter who. I mean, talk about a guy who he would go on to win an Oscar for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He won the BAFTA um, for screenplay writing for The Lady Killers from 1955 with Alec Guinness. Um, he uh, he wrote Genevieve. Um, he wrote The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, uh, The Maggie, Touch and Go, The Smallest oh. Show on Earth, um, the, the Man in the Sky. He worked through, throughout British and American film. 
this is a guy who has a lot of clout under his belt and mostly through British cinema. Uh, so this came for him as a project um, because he was having writers blocked and he conceived the idea about having it be a comedic chase through Scotland. And he, um, he, but he was having this writer's block and he told his agent, I've got an idea, but, um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. And the agent just said like, Look, just write me yeah. a letter. Just write, just write me a letter. Such and a good, so, such a good story. Yeah. And so he sent him a 10 page letter and that 10 page letter was sold for thousands of dollars to make this movie. Dude, $300,000. So, they sold that letter for. He, yeah, and um, <laughs> and he had the same agent as Carl Reiner. So when you hear this story, you're hearing it from Carl Reiner's mouth. Going uh, like, "No, I saw it. I saw it all. I I saw him do it." Um, sorry, that was a terrible Carl Reiner. Anyway, <laughs> um, rest rest in peace, man. We miss you. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's how this all comes about. And then from there, you know, Kramer is a person who basically says like, "Well, if it's a comedy." If you're gonna do a, if I'm gonna do a comedy, I'm gonna do it big. I'm gonna do it broad. Um, he puts together this all-star cast, um, and you know, with the casting agent involved in this, um, uh, one, you've got to imagine that uh, they, that there's a headache, just really like just trying to wrangle all these people together because once this film started filming Brandon the word got out and then oh, every well, comedian I'm sure to be in this movie and if you don't the, get a phone every, call and everybody else is in this movie it's like why didn't you call me man <laughs> yeah it, it's 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 bananas that um that this film uh got the amount of people that it did but it's it's a situation where um only um only at this time could you probably do this because this is still the studio era technically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 1963. Actors are utilizing their agents for the most part, but there's a little bit more ability to grab people at this point still than there will be in the years to come. Um, suffice it to say, you know, when you look at the roster for this film um, and you see how much time and energy is put into i mean like well dude the amount of names i don't think I, that are like yeah. in this movie the only person that i can think like you know modern you know modern times right now that does stuff like this is like soderberg that's the only person i could think of that will get yeah and I, like 10 names I, to come out for a movie and i was also gonna say um uh the uh, that that the Marvel movies today are the only other ones who can do this too, but that comes with a huge, huge caveat of the fact that you have a sensibly um, all these intertwining storylines yes. and stuff, so that in that way, that's the only way that that actually works. Well, um, and look at the budget but, too, right? They can sort of afford it. Like yeah. Soderbergh, like most of his movies are living in what forty million that range. To get yeah, roughly about that yeah. To get all of those names to come out. I mean, like, I mean, we don't get that from a director anymore. Like, I mean, other than maybe Soderbergh. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg can get, assemble a pretty decent cast now and again. Oh, like, absolutely. I mean, the post. Yeah. The post is filled with that stuff. Like the the post is. Mm -hmm. Uh, is kind of like a who's who of who's on television at the moment. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. it's it's and David Cross is in there too for whatever reason, but. <laughs> 
I, I actually I know what reason he's there for. He's there because I want him there. That's why. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, this um, so they they reach out to these numer- numerous uh, amounts of comedians. Um, I'm gonna do this, and I'm, I won't do. I, w- I would normally not do this because it's such a huge cast, but. There are so many fucking people, Brandon, that if I don't mention them all, I'm going to feel like an asshole down the line. So I've got the list up. Here we go. You've got Spencer Tracy, Milton Burl, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean, Phil Silvers, Terry Thomas, Jonathan Winters, Edie Adams, Dorothy Provine, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Jim Backus, Joe E. Brown, Alan Carney, Chick Chandler. Barry Chase, who's the only sole living member of the cast to this day. That's uh, crazy. Lloyd Corrigan, William yeah. Demarest, Andy Devine, Selma Diamond, Jimmy Durante, he's very important to this movie, Peter Falk, Norman Fell, Stan Freeberg, <laughs> Leo Gorsi, Paul Ford, Sterling Holloway, Edward Everett Horton, Marvin Kaplan, Buster Keaton, Don Knotts, <sighs> Charles Lane, Mike Mazurki, Charles McGraw, Cliff Norton, Zazu Pitts, Carl Reiner. Yes, me, that Carl Reiner. I, I, I recently died. Um, Madeline Rue, Roy Roberts, Arnold Stang, and Nick Stewart, The Three Stooges, which consisted at this point of Moe, Larry, and Curly Joe Dorita, uh, and Sammy Tong, Jesse White, and, of course, Jack Benny. So, and I will actually make the last one uh, another recent passy, Mr. Jerry Lewis. Um, mm-hmm. That's not even to mention all the other people that go uncredited that have a different legacy of their own. But these are like this is stacked. This is huge and stacked. And a lot of these actors do only appear for like glimpses. Um, well, dude, and, I mean, you uh, know, Jack, so, Jack Benny is like just the close up, right? Didn't they use a different guy? Wasn't it a different actor yeah. in the wide? <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 get to that when we go into the plot because like what? I, so here's the thing with the plot of this film. As we discuss it, guys, uh, it's going to be very, very hard to detail this plot point for point because the story is so basic that all you need to discuss is the basics of what happens and then talk about these set pieces that are incredible. Um, that's not a dig at the movie's depth or intelligence. It's just that the story is that simple. All these people chasing $350,000 under a big W. That's the point of this movie. The movie is about greed. Um, and unlike Eric Stron- von Stronheim's greed, um, it didn't need to be cut as much to make its point. <laughs> so. and, but let's, let, I mean, to be fair, right? Just because it's simple doesn't mean that, you know, it's easy to make a movie like this that's like, you know, as amazing as this movie is. There's a lot of movies that try yeah. to do it. There's one called Rat Race. Which is a direct rip of this movie. Yeah, and, and, and it I is a garbage talk, fire. Do, Zach, Zach's yeah, nice. I'm. <laughs> I think it's, it's no. I I'm think gonna, it's a I'm, garbage I'm fire. I'm gonna agree with you. <laughs> oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you because that's a that's a particular film where uh, I saw it's a mad 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 world before I saw Rat Race, and when I saw Rat Race, I watched it more as a kid with my sister because it's only about an hour and forty minutes, and it was new and fresh and hip. Now, if I was to try to watch Rat Race, I think I'd rather dunk my head in the toilet. Um, now, I like people in that movie, but I don't like that movie. I think it's primarily because Jerry Zucker is not Stanley Kramer. Um, that's that's just the reality yeah. of what we're dealing with here. Um, but there's a lot of like uh, uh, there's a, there's a lot of notes in regards to uh, the cast of this film that we should touch on before we go into this plot here. 
Um, a lot of people were considered this film that did not make it. Um, uh, the Smiler Grogan um, character that we'll talk about later, um, th- there were supposed to be five principals that were to go in and then kick off this race. The initial lineup was Milton Berle, who would end up being in the movie, Sid Caesar, mm-hmm. Phil Silvers, also in the movie. Jackie Gleason and Red Skeleton were also primary f- fixtures in the imagination of um, uh, William Rose's version of the script. Um, Skeleton was unable to do it because of his television series and uh, opted for a cameo instead. But then he demanded such a high salary that Stanley Kramer turned him down. Um, or in Hollywood terms, he told him to go fuck himself. He, he so, pulled the Bruce Willis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and now, yeah, 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 no, no, I'm not. I want a million look, per day. Oh, my look, God. Look, Stanley, st- Stanley, I, Bruce Willis, am not going <laughs> to be in It's a Mad, Mad, Mad it's... World 2 unless I get $5 million yeah. per second of film that yeah. I'm on screen because I want a boat. Um, I, and it, I know it's my hundredth boat, but I want that fucking boat. Um, so, yeah, no, that, yeah, that that guy, um, that that guy turned into a turned into a jagoff really quickly. Huh? Oh, dude, he lives um, in my VOD. Like recently, uh, recent releases on all my streaming stuff. <laughs> Bruce Willis is always there. Oh, that's where he is during quarantine. Uh, but I'll tell you where he's not in my video library. <laughs> Ooh, snap. Um, now, um, here's the thing, though. Here's interesting. When we talk about this film and its comedic elements, you know, one of the things that this film does lack, and I will point it out there, is that, that it does have a significant lack of female comedians in the in the movie. Um, what's interesting is is that amongst the people that were suggested for the female companions uh, were Lucille Ball, Martha Ray, Joan Davis, and Imogene Coca, which it would have been cool to have Imogene yeah. there with Sid Caesar in a movie. I would have loved that. Um, I don't think we'd ever gotten it. And here's here's the interesting thing. So Ethel Merman is a genius in this movie, hands oh, down. Dude, she's, There's nobody that could. She's a hammer. Nobody, she's a hammer. Nobody, <laughs> nobody could replace her. However, I offer the two other suggestions that um, were bandied about. Sophie Tucker or Mae West. Mm. Now, Sophie Tucker, sure, yes. Mae West, absolutely. I'd love to see her lay into Milton Berle. Oh, um, <laughs> treat him like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just just smack him around with her sexuality like that would just been wonderful to see. Um, now here also is um, you know obviously Jack Benny is in this movie, so we now know how Jack Benny fits into this week's episode. Um, but it was also um, uh, interesting that, and I thought this would have been very very um, uh, intriguing. I don't know if it would have worked. Is that Rose initially wanted Jack Benny to play the role of the detective that's monitoring the group throughout the film, hmm. um, which. You know, when we talk about the plot of this film, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on why I think that might be. Uh, it's it's good that we didn't have that. Um, and then uh, the cameo that Benny ended up having was originally intended for Stan Laurel, mm-hmm. um, but he declined because he had promised once Oliver Hardy died, he promised that he was never going to work again. Um, and then lastly, one of the big, big, big um, uh, casting switches. Um, is that uh, Smiler Grogan, who's played by Jimmy Durante, was originally intended for Buster Keaton. Um, and uh, this will be part one in a series of discussions about how Buster Keaton was fucked all over uh, the, the industry way too much. Royally? Um, royally. Yeah, no, yeah, royally fucked. Um, and uh, uh, Joe Besser was going to be uh, in the film too, uh, in the role of Irwin at the gas station, but he had a commitment on the Joey Bishop show, so Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas just wouldn't allow him to take time off. Uh, Jackie Mason was 
was cast in that role, but then he had to bow out because of his nightclub commitments. So Stanley told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> um, and um, and the and that role ended up going to Marvin Kaplan, who I'd argue was perfect in the role. Um, and then Bob Hope was to have a cameo, but he got into a fight with the studio about future projects and that was doing his contract. And then they ultimately refused to allow his appearance in the film. Um, so they were basically just like, look, tell Hope that he can go fuck himself because we're just tired of him banding about. Yeah, it's like, you know, um, that, you know that bridge <laughs> that you burned on the way out of here? Yeah, it's still burnt. Don't come back. Yeah, well, after he burned it, he went, thanks for the memories. <laughs> 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 he wasn't going to sing Burning Bridges. That's a Clint Eastwood oh. tune. So, but, you know. Um, and then there were also roles for Maury Amsterdam and Elliot Reed um, uh, that initially were going to be um, a Dr. Chadwick and an Uncle Mike. That would have been additions to Culpepper's uh, family circle or people <laughs> that interrupt him. And Maury Amsterdam would have been fun as hell in the movie. Um, but, um, uh, or they were, I should say, they were scripted and filmed, but they were never. Um, uh, never released, and we'll uh, get into that too. Oh man! I, but yeah, so there was that's crazy. So yeah. I wish it was like an extended cut of it's a oh, but, <laughs> of this movie. But, the, but 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 there is Brandon. Oh there yeah, there is. Um, and we and and we will get into it because now I watched the theatrical version earlier this week, as I'm sure you did. I also today sat down and watched the uh, extended cut. The extended cut of it's a mad 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 world has some history in it, primarily because of. Um, how long this movie was initially in the edit, which was about four, over four hours. Um, they cut it down to 210 minutes. It premiered at 192 minutes. And then by the time it got its initial theatrical release, it was cut down to 161 minutes. Um, Criterion was able to cull together sources from different extended versions and missing scenes that were located over the years um, combined with what, what basically some of the scenes were not found visually, but they had the audio track. So they used production stills to compensate for it. And basically they reconstructed as close as they could um, what the original cut would have been. Now they're off by about th uh, four, 13 minutes. So they're much more closer, if anything, to the premiere cut of the film, which is 192 minutes. Um, and in, in, in looking at the extended cut today, I will say that it's a good thing that a lot of this stuff was cut, but there's also moments that I wish hadn't been cut for comedy's sake. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, but that theatrical cut that we've had, that we've grown up with, is is tight. It moves. For a movie that is two hours and 40 minutes, um, I, I don't feel like it drags. Oh. Um, I, 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 I feel like I'm too engaged with what's going on. It's just, it's madness, this movie. Oh, it's, it's so a, good. Hey, Brandon, it's a mad, 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 mad world. It's so uh, good, man. Like, <laughs> um, I love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, let's go ahead. We're going to jump into the crew here, and then we're going to go diving deep into, as deep as we can, into the plot of this two-hour and 40-minute uh, embracement of madness. Uh, so it's a mad, 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 mad world, directed by Stanley Kramer, produced by Stanley Kramer, screenplay by William Rose and Tanya Rose, the story by Tanya Rose, um, music by Ernest Gold, Cinematography by Ernest Laszlo, uh, a, a superb cinematographer who kind of deserves a, uh, <laughs> a an episode of his own for some of the thing, films he shot from uh, Stalag 17, um, Kiss Me Deadly. Like This guy was like deep into the latter day end of Hollywood. <laughs> um, and then there are three editors on this film, Frederick Knudsen, Robert C. Jones, and Gene Fowler Jr., 
Um, this film was released by United Artists on November 7th, 1963. The film would uh, be budgeted at $9.4 million and gross $60 million. So if you're doing your calculations correctly, you know this movie made some money. Woo! Um, so um, and I will say the, um, we've been I've been we've been saying it's a mad, 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 mad world um, initially. Um, I mean, this this always feels like it's just a story. But like, you know, Kramer's talked about it in interviews. Yep. He considered adding a fifth mad to the title before deciding it was redundant. But then he just said, yeah, later in interviews. Yeah, I regret that. Should have been five, <laughs> not four. Well, you know, if I could have done it, I would have made it six and, and really fuck with them. But whatever. Well, wasn't you know? the original <laughs> title? Um a little, a little something less serious or something. It was uh, the working title. Yeah. Um. Uh. Was uh. Uh. So many thieves, and then the later one was something a little less serious. Yeah. Um. And then uh, when they shifted the location to America from Scotland, the title changed to "Where But in America?" question <laughs> mark And then one damn thing after another. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, we need to write a movie called One Damn Thing After Another. <laughs> I mean, if we end up with something as solid as this movie at the end of that like that journey, we should do it. Oh, God. Oh, you know what? I mean, honestly, it could be the equivalent of it. It's a mad, mad, mad world today, but we just call it One Damn Thing After Another because I like the idea of putting curse words in the titles to really fuck with exhibitors who have to sell this in their theater where families are uh, having to go in to watch The Lion King 5. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, but this is this is ridiculous. I also just love the idea of Kramer going like trying to up the ante with Rose, you know, just going like, no, put seven, eight mad. Oh, yeah. I want this to be fucking insane. Like Rose going like, whoa. Back off, bro. Look, you're <laughs> opening a movie theater with this movie. Yeah. Br- crank it up yeah. to a 12. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and you know, as we go along in this plot, which we're going to do right now, um, you know, we'll talk about the filming of this film in the Panavision and stuff, because uh, once you see the film, you are you're very much transported into its world, not just from the story, but from the visuals. It's beautiful. Um, but we open up with this animated sequence. Uh, it's a beautiful animated sequence. Well, before that, we open up with a um, an overture um, with a song written for the film. It's a mad, mad, mad world, which if you listen to the lyrics and read the lyrics, not all the jokes hold up today because some of them are a little bit outdated, uh, not just for societal reasons, but also just some of them are very corny. Yeah. Now, I like the song because for the most part, it's very jovial, lighthearted, non-offensive. There are some like <laughs> there are some there's some weird German jokes and turkey jokes in that song. But, <laughs> you well, know, like it's it's uh, it's it's a good song. It kicks you in like it gets you into the nature of, OK, this is an absolutely ridiculous concept and we're going to make an equally ridiculous song. <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah. I also lo- um, I love the overture because as a kid, you know, most of my friends didn't know what an overture was. So when the movie started, <laughs> I used to tell them that their TVs were broken. <laughs> so I from right out the gate, I was trolling people with this movie, which is why I also have a special spot for it in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Brandon, but, but, but Brandon, how will it be fixed if we don't know what's on the TVs? Then you just, you know, you can just time it so that oh. you hit it like Fonzie does with the jukebox, no. and then you fix the TV with your magic Brandon power. I cannot tell you how often I've had people hitting the side of their TVs, just being like, "What is wrong?" I'm like, "I don't know." At my house, it was fine, and then it just <laughs> then they figure it out and they hate me, but. <laughs> and they just smack. This is when you get beat up in the hallways at school. Oh yeah, you just <laughs> you told us you told us my TV was broken through King Kong, you motherfucker! <laughs> like, <laughs> how dare you? 
Um, but anyway, um, so no, we, but yeah, so the overture done, we do in this animated sequence very, very much sums up the, not just the insanity of it, but also kind of starts setting up, um, kind of the realm of Spencer Tracy's character essentially in that hat, um, and kind of the, the, the madcap, uh, antics that will ensue. Um, we see all the names kind of unfurled in different fashions. And then the title sequence is fucking with the casting lists mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so it's already suggesting like this movie doesn't give a shit. Um, and in the best way possible. Um, and I, there's a credit in the film that I, I genuinely love this because I love it when, uh, credits do this sometimes where they like get cheeky with it. And they said, like, we want to say uh, special thanks uh, and sincere apologies to the following uh, counties and cities. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it lists all the different cities um, that they were in uh, amongst them, places like Santa Rosita uh, in Los Angeles and Palm Springs and stuff like that. So they they they, uh, they knew already that they were having their tongue firmly in their cheek knew how to Stanley Kramer knew they set the tone at, they set the tone yeah exactly yeah in the in, in the best way possible and the these animated credit sequence is designed by none other than Saul Bass the genius behind the uh, credit sequences for many of Hitchcock's films um, most notably Psycho and um, arguably uh, North by Northwest uh, I think is probably one of the most mind-boggling ones because of its simplicity um, it's pretty awesome psycho is, it's pretty awesome yeah e- yeah and this one in particular like it's full out bananas what? um ending with that little man in the hat getting trampled like <laughs> not even inspector clouseau character in the pink panther cartoon openings had that much trouble you know no. like he didn't get trampled to death very true like, now it, yeah it, but he did, it... he did have dynamite <laughs> well yeah i mean dynamite kind of like you know jacks it up a little bit but um, now I don't know if this is true, but I, I heard that um, when, you know, I forget who did this, who, who actually saw it and then reached out. But I heard that the people that animated the title sequence ended up doing the animated Peanuts show. Um, I have not heard that. Yeah. Um, if Saul Bass was doing the uh, credit animation, um, then if they were working for Melendez Studios, then that would certainly hold water. Um, but that it's, this is 63. So the Christmas special comes out in 64, which is the first one. Yeah. That would seem, that seemed to hold water. I'm going to have to double check. If I'm wrong, I will add an addendum at the end. Yeah. Of the show. Yeah. I've never, yeah. I've never fact checked <laughs> it, but I was like, Oh, that could be interesting. I didn't, I figured you might know. Cause you're like a encyclopedia. <laughs> not on everything i do want to clarify i do have to clarify for the audience every so often like i don't know everything that's why i'm bringing other people on board because you never know what i'm going to learn and you certainly don't know what you're going to learn um you won't learn anything from me if i'm only talking to myself on mic, guys um <laughs> so we're um uh but yeah no that that's what i'm going to fact check though that would be interesting because you can imagine like them like the you know melendez, the, the melendez studios mm-hmm. going up to schultz going like look we you know, we could do the peanuts. We did the It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World uh, uh, opening sequence. And he looks at it and goes like, well, this is just too violent for my characters. <laughs> you know, and then you could be like, but you're you have a dog that fights in World War One. And he goes like, yeah, but you don't see it. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I guess there's there's de- definitely images of Snoopy going through World War One France. Uh, but, you know, I don't show any bullets, you know, like I just imply the psychological oh, yeah. trauma because I'm Charles Schultz. <laughs> We're just going to imply everything. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and, and also, I, I, I have made children aware of their psychological trauma before they even know how to identify it. Um, and, you know, one of them is even willing to help out for five cents at her psychiatry booth. So. Yeah, with her little <laughs> pseudoscience. Just five, five, <laughs> five cents, please. She, Lucy, Lucy kind scam. of does... Lucy does a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and a version of Scientology that I don't agree with. Oh, so, <laughs> but, um, so anyway, the, the, so after the animated sequence, we open up and we're in a helicopter already. Immediately we're seeing the establishment of the highway. Uh, a car is speeding through, um, zooming across. We get different perspectives from the car. So already he Stanley Kramer is showing how modern action movies are going to be filmed. Like like legitimately oh, yeah. the speed of these car chases is just a notch below what we have today. And the only reason it's just a notch below is because they're not thinking the same thing that a Fast and Furious filmmaker is making or well, um, or even a, 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 a NASCAR-driven movie like a, like a Days of Thunder or something. You're like right. That. You're absolutely right. And it's mostly just the editing, in my opinion. Because if you played mm-hmm. out these movies in just a wide, which is sort of like what they did in, you know, it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> did I hit all four? I don't know if I did. but um, It's supposed to be five, yeah, damn it. <laughs> but, like, very rarely are they punching in to, like, you know, a shot in the car, a shot from, like, you know, like the dash. Like, they're not... They're not doing that, but it's like even yeah. through like the wide, you're like this is this is pretty nutty. Like this isn't like <laughs> someone's gonna get hurt. And I mean, I know that yeah. a lot of people did get hurt making this movie, but like, yeah, I mean, it would it looks like every time that they went for one take, someone was gonna get hurt. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's it's basically the the production. Uh, if there was a BTS documentary that was done in superb detail, it would have become it, it it literally would have been called "Please Sign This Insurance." Form yeah, because the amount of the the and we're just in the cars right now, and nothing's really happening <laughs> until that car goes off that fucking ramp and just kabooms off to the side of that hill. <laughs> Like and I'm talking like a kaboom. Yeah. And actually, and and the sound design in this, um, they there's a lot in the in the Criterion edition where they talk about Ben Burt actually talks about this. Um, ben Burt, the Oscar-winning sound designer of a little uh, franchise that changed movie history called Star Wars, um, and he uh, yeah, he never said heard that of it. basically. Oh yeah, no, it's Star Wars. No, it's 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 it seems like it's a little thing. I'm sure it will not make any sequels that will cause huge debates on the internet over racism uh, and sexism. Uh, anyway. Straight to video um, too, I but, bet. Yeah, yeah. You know, that and Star Trek, you know, both of them garbage, right? <laughs> but anyway, no, he um uh he does he discussed how um within the sound design of this film amongst the things is that a lot of the sounds that we hear on it seeing them played out visually, the sounds that they would actually make would be rather boring. So it was up to the sound designer of this film um, the sound designer, uh, of course, uh, being Gordon E. Sawyer and Walter Elliott, um, who did the sound. Walter Elliott did the sound effects and the sound mixing and editing was done by Gordon E. Sawyer. Um, and uh, Elliott basically put together a library um, of old stuff and making new stuff. He was a master at this. Um, and a lot of that car crash is like a combination of sounds from glass breaking to metal crushing to anything else. And they're all combined to create that chaotic sound. So when you hear a car crash in a movie, it's generally not 
the sound on set. It's something that's made in post. Um, that's what a sound. Um, that's what a sound editor does. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, already you're getting the sensation of what's going on, and then everybody who has been around this car pulls over, um, <laughs> and the people who pull over are are none other than I'm only going to say their characters' names once because I'm just going to refer to them as the actors going forward because it would be too hard to remember each of their names um, unless it's Cole Pepper or J. Russell Finch. But um, but Martin Milton Berle, who plays J. Russell Finch, Sid Caesar is Melville, Melville Crump, um, and uh, E.D. Adams playing his wife Monica, Buddy Hackett as Benji, Ethel Merman as Mrs. Marcus, Mickey Rooney as uh, Dingy Bell, um, and... Uh, uh, Jonathan Winters, uh, Dorothy, Pro- yeah, Jonathan Winters, um, Jonathan Winters playing um, Pike, Lenny Pike, and Dorothy Provine playing Emmeline. Um, they, uh, the the men get out of the car, and they um, are <clears throat> they they come across essentially the site of Smiler Grogan played <laughs> by Jimmy Durante. Now. I, I will ask this of very few of the older actors because I know you're not going to know every single one. But Brandon, what is your knowledge of Jimmy Durante at at, <laughs> at, at any point in history? Is it just um, this movie? Yeah, I mean to be honest, like I mean I know I know I've seen some other things with him, but like this is the mm-hmm. only thing that I can like be like, all right, he, yeah, it's a mad, 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 mad world. That's the guy. He's the one that yeah. <laughs> kicks the bucket. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh god, yes. It's my favorite joke in the movie because it's the most on the nose. Um but um but you know the one thing his last thing that he really did was he was the narrator of Frosty the Snowman in 1969. Um he's the That's one who sings true. the fro- Yep, he's the Frosty the Snowman that we all know and love. He had a big radio career. He had a, it was very big in vaudeville. Um it, this is a guy who was a forefront of of the comedy that is very representative in this film. But he plays Smiler Grogan. He's he's about to die. Sid Caesar asks him if he needs any help. That he's not a uh, a traditional doctor, but he is a dentist, and asks if he's in a lot of pain. And Jimmy Durante goes, "Is he kidding?" <laughs> like, just <laughs> it's a good example of Sid Caesar's ability to just deliver the line straight and have it sound funny, and then Jimmy Durante to give it an additional kick. Um, and so he tells everybody, listen, there's this dose, see? 350 G's. Do you hear what I'm saying? 350 <laughs> G's buried under this big W in Santa Rosita. A big W. You can't miss it. And then Smiler Grogan goes into the memories of what he thinks of himself as the most <laughs> jovial guy in the neighborhood. It looks like he dies. And then he gets back up and says, say it don't matter, Antessa. <laughs> say it don't don't matter it does tell him it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and then he just dies yeah, peacefully it's, it's so and then good. that's when he kicks he kicks the bucket literally there is a story about that bucket kick this the chief stuntman of this film um who, who doesn't I, you know, like stanley he, kramer from oh no he he did not hold on i want to pull up his name because I, I i don't want to get his name wrong on this because it is uh this is this is important um yeah, I think he described him once as like the most like unmechanical man. Like he described Stanley Kramer as that. It's like yeah, he said he said he didn't. He said he wouldn't know how to do that stuff. Yeah, but um, but he would um, uh, uh anyway, I'll, I'll get his name and put it in here later. But um, but anyway, ladies okay. and gentlemen, 
The name of that stunt supervisor is Carrie Lofton. Carrie Lofton. Apologies for my idiocy and neglect of Mr. Lofton and his legacy on this wonderful film. And now, on with the rest of the story. But anyway, he would apparently drink, uh, like go to the bar when he was not having to do much or he was just waiting around. Such a good story. And Stanley <laughs> Kramer told this, told him, hey, you've got to... Uh, 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 you, you've got to be in, so get sobered up and get over to set so he <laughs> fucking put his hand down his throat, got all the sickness out of him that he could, and got over to set, and the only thing he had him do that day was be the stunt foot for Jimmy Durante kicking the bucket. Dude, yeah. Dude, just, it's, so, it's so good, right? This th- That's and, just... It's like a big fuck you, Stanley. Like what? I I was just chilling well, out, man. Like, from, I mean, from what I heard too, right? This this stunt guy would drink every night like this. Like yeah. he was hammered, like constantly. So yeah. I saw. I think Stanley saw him at the bar one night and was like, "Do you even know what you're doing tomorrow?" Because he knows he knew he didn't read the uh, the production sheets. So. The guy was like, "Oh, uh, I, 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 no, I guess I don't." And then I guess that, like you said, he scurried out of there, <laughs> went home, threw up all the booze just to get to set and not be like, you know, dead. And <laughs> yeah, apparently he had nothing to do. The story is just like that's how much stunt work is in this film. Is like even the smallest things in this movie are a flat out stunt man doing it. So the comedy and the stunts are in equal force here. This is oh. not just a comedian's movie. No. Uh, no, they didn't phone it in at all. Like like the technical the technical achievements that they did in the, that they were able to, you know, accomplish in this movie, it's nutty. Like <laughs> that this was all for a comedy. Like Yeah. I mean, it, it's I mean, that's why it's like, you know, this like the the definitive comedy, right? I mean, that's what they were shooting yeah. for. Yeah. Well, because it has everything that a comedy should have in terms of its uh, ability to be audacious, to do the impossible, to really, um, you know, I, I, it's funny as we're, you know, we'll, we'll talk some about these set pieces coming up, but I will say that like comedy to me is best described by Jack Benny, who's in this movie, which is like he, the reason his character was so successful is because he thought it was because he portrayed all the faults and the frailties of mankind. The movie It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World is literally the definition of that statement. Oh, yeah. Because everybody in this film is technically terrible. Oh. They are terrible, terrible people. Like, nobody is a good person nobody. in this movie. Even, like, I mean, apart from maybe the cameos. But, like, you're not, like, every main character that we are genuinely following in this film is a, is, is a, is a piece of shit, except for... Uh, Milton Berle's wife. Yep. In the movie, yeah, I would, uh, Dorothy Provine. I would <laughs> um, agree with that. It, yeah, and so like it, that's what we're that that's what you deal with in this film is that like it's it's almost like Kramer's message about the message in this movie if he was the message director, I'd argue that his message one it's about greed obviously but two it's about the human condition period like it's just humans period that's it that's what it's about it's about humans period yeah and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a beautiful thing that he makes with this a combination of slapstick, a little bit of screwball, mm-hmm. definitely a lot of physical um, uh, comedy um, no. mixed in a lot of wordplay. <laughs> you know, there's a, l- a little bit. Yeah, I say a little bit. What am I talking there's about? There's so much. <laughs> Stanley Stanley comes up from the grave. He's like, you don't fucking get it, do you, Eastman? Listen to me. <laughs> he starts choking me. This is so insane that I'm coming back up from the grave to get you fucking straight. <laughs> Dude, just wait till we get to, like, the garage destruction. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, they all, they, all, they, they all see him kick the bucket. 
detectives come down, get the, get their statements and whatnot, and they they notify that they've got to go talk to Culpepper and turn, tell him about the twist of events in this story. Meanwhile, everybody uh, who saw the death and heard about the story gets into their cars. They all start following each other really closely. There's a beautiful well, edited sequence. They, they also lied to the police. E- <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they did. They lied to police. Well, they technically didn't lie. They just omitted oh, certain yeah. truths. Oh, yeah. That's lawyer jargon <laughs> they, right there. Because they did talk about the ant test thing, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but 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 the uh, but so yeah, they get in their cars, they're following closely. This beautifully edited sequence of them each telling each other, telling their respective others the story of what just happened, and or trying to figure it out. Um, with uh, the ending with Jonathan Winters in the back going like, "Work where? That's it. I got to work on where it is." Uh, <laughs> he's trying to figure out what the W is, um, and uh, uh, and so it ends with them kind of playing chicken with each other on the road before Jonathan Winters backs off, pulls his truck off to the side and then tries to sneak around the corner, hoping that he has <laughs> eluded them. I was trying to think of like what the positioning of this is, but it's a beautiful moment. He sneaks up and then the camera reveals that they're all seeing him. They all go like, okay, we, 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 we're all in the same boat here. Let's pull over to the side here oh. again and figure out how we're going to deal with this. And what <laughs> follows is a sequence of deal-making at its, at its absolute ridiculousness. Like, the, the, Sid Caesar is the star of this scene, in my opinion, because he's given the task of having to explain the division of this money and that, the potential of it in 500 different options. Oh, <laughs> like, dude, it's, it's he, so funny. Caesar is a Caesar was a uh, a massive comedy giant uh, for a multitude of reasons. If you've never watched clips of the Sid Caesar show, which is your show of shows or Caesar's Hour, you need to look these up online. My favorite one is a is a very classic one. It's the one where they made fun of From Here to Eternity with him and Imogene Coco, and uh, the the big gag in it is is that the the uh, they're doing the makeout scene on the beach and they keep throwing water on him, like, and they do it to a ridiculous amount. Well, <laughs> um, well he's amazing, man. Like, and it's yeah. so funny. Like every scene that he's in in this movie is a trailer worthy scene. Like that's something you'd want yeah. to have in the trailer. Yeah, and 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 he's his his plot line. I think a good way to describe all these plot lines is that technically each of the char- groups of characters are following a different comedy trope in their own way. So like Sid Caesar and his wife in the film are essentially kind of playing out the screwball romantic couple. Mm-hmm angle um milton burl's very much doing a sitcom type of deal with the mother-in-law gags um uh, buddy hackett and mickey rooney are very much an abbott and costello-esque or a bob hope and bing crosby like they're that duo and then jonathan winters it's kind of hard to place him but i think it's just kind of like this lone guy on an adventure kind of thing like where he'd be like it's almost kind of like a chaplain-esque figure Mm -hmm. And I say that primarily because of the amount of physical humor that John Winters oh. is asked to do. And it's not just the one scene you're thinking of. It's all over the place. Like the way he rides a bike oh, yeah. in this movie is absolutely hilarious. Um, so they all try to figure it out. Meanwhile, Ethel Merman keeps yelling. <laughs> and uh, and they keep calling her an old bag or this oh, dude, broad. She breaks and down one, the negotiations. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and she's yeah, she is she is also the reason that uh, we were in the Cold War is because Elville Merman wouldn't shut up. <laughs> no, but like the, what's funny about this character, like it's interesting, like talking about like archaic language and whatnot. Like the one line that I don't know how it sits with me, but it's still hilarious because of the context of the scene is when they keep referring to her as a as a man, <laughs> oh. just because of the way she's so abrasive. Oh, it's terrible now. Yeah. Now, obviously, today that is not very um, that is not very appropriate um, in terms of like you know like degrading somebody a, a woman's power in it. In the case of this film, the reason why I let it go is ultimately because Ethel Merman, as an actress, worked so beautifully within that confine that it's almost impossible to not go along with the gag. It's almost because she knows what she's doing. The comedians around her certainly know what she's doing and what they need to do to respond to it. It's a very timed uh, and very precise execution of a comic style that doesn't exist anymore today for good reason. But it is still funny in the in the in the moment of it because I well, still love uh, I still love the moment when Buddy Hackett um, he says like uh, we'll we'll all we're all going to just go for in it for ourselves and may the best man win except for you lady may you just drop, drop dead, dead. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wish I could do a Buddy Hackett. I can't do a Buddy Hackett. It's like it's really hard without hurting my voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's such a, but, she's such a strong character, and mm-hmm. like and I mean and she's talking to all of these guys like they're morons. And let's be honest, yeah. at every point at a you know, point throughout the film, we learn that each one of them are morons. So she's right, yeah, or or at least susceptible to terrible decisions. Oh yeah, terrible decision um, making. Yeah, and and so by the by the end of this conversation, Jonathan Winters essentially breaks it up by going, "There's enough for you, and enough for you, and for me, and for you, and for." And then they start as he slowly works his way towards his truck. <laughs> beautiful fucking delivery by winter is just so fucking beautiful they all get off they all start chasing each other down the road we start getting the 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 key moments of these action sequences within this um the split off point for most of them uh happens uh within trying to reach an airport um and uh sid caesar and his wife get the plane uh leaving buddy hackett and mickey rooney in the dust meanwhile um uh uh Bill uh, Milton Burl's character and his wife and mother-in-law, um, they get uh, their car smashed by Jonathan Winters outside of the gas station, um, and uh, uh, they uh, they end up having to hitch a ride with a British <laughs> uh, desertologist, <laughs> I guess, um, played by Terry Thomas, um, who uh, you Brandon. Uh, do you, is this the only Terry Thomas movie that you think you've seen? No, I know, I know that I've seen him, and like, like when I saw his face, I was like, oh man, I'm like, I know this guy, I know him. So he, yeah, he's in, uh, he's he's in a lot of uh, he's in a lot of films. Unfortunately, though, he you know he kind of stops working at, past 1980 because of Parkinson's, but um, his big films in America were initially Bachelor Flat. How to Murder Your Wife, um, but he was also in stuff like Private's Progress, School for Scoundrels, the original School for Scoundrels, um, and a lot of British cinema prior to that. But Terry Thomas is an actor who is basically the basis for a lot of British stereotypes that we still carry on today. Um, his particular thing is that he would lampoon 
upper class or hoity-toity British characterizations. So like the, the definitions that I have listed here are cads, toffs, and bounders. And he had a very unique voice and he had a gap tooth look. So he was unmistakable and his delivery is something that you see, like I said, it's carried on to this day. The most recent example of it that I can point to is if you watch The Hateful Eight, which is also a 70 millimeter production, you will see that um, Tim Roth, his character for 70% of that movie is Terry Thomas. And then when he becomes English Pete at the end, <laughs> he just goes into Tim Roth voice. But when 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 Tim Roth is doing that whole thing about like, I suggest that we put the northern side mm-hmm. over here and the southern side over here and the line in the middle will be Philadelphia. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's that's Terry Thomas. And like and even like I think it was Quentin, either Quentin or Tim Roth in an interview said, like, yeah, I'm basically doing Terry Thomas. So like so it's kind of lovely seeing him get in on this action too. And this is also a very early role for him too so he's already established himself as a caricature caricature that early on um and then meanwhile jonathan winters um after smashing the truck um he uh (laughs) he finds himself on a bike to try to go get transportation and then that's when the milton burl uh and uh ethel merman characters get picked up Mm -hmm. by terry thomas so jonathan winters is out on the road on this fucking bike this what it's described as a girl's bike but i looked at that bike i'm like i think a boy could ride that i don't think there's any issues here. jonathan winters Um, is just a big guy (laughs) yeah he's a huge guy so and this and the thing about jonathan winters is that outside of films and small scenes that i've seen i haven't been the most um the biggest follower of winters but i've never lost i've never had an ounce of disrespect for him whatsoever i Anytime you talk of Winters, you're talking about a legend by the way he like would do his characters on uh, Gary Moore and Steve Allen shows. Like he, Dude, was, he was in the Smurfs. A genius. He was in the, in the voice, I <laughs> think, for Papa Smurf. Yeah, Papa Smurf in the Smurfs and the Smurfs too. And he died nine days after recording his dialogue for the Smurfs too. So, um, I mean, I guess that was the most hilarious way one could go out was. <laughs> for a man of his comedic genius but uh he was he won actually what his emmy win was for supporting actor for the sitcom davis rules which <laughs> came and went very quickly now it's um, not the, but it's uh, not the best movie but uh he was in the flintstones yes yeah. he is he's in that <laughs> um he, he he had a he had a fine film career it's it, it's nothing of disrespect it's just i think he was much more known for being a comedian than anything else which is you see and clips all across the gamut that are are now available on youtube um you know he he was a genius with characterization he could do impressions like he was just all across the board jack parr once said that if he was asked to name the 25 best comedians he would just point and say here they are jonathan winters (laughs) because that's how amazing he was um he would also if you i mean i think the first time i would have heard him on anything would have been tiny tunes or um one of the scooby-doo uh new scooby-doo movies episodes um but he's great in uh, as norman and uh russinger coming uh so he again this is a this is a fantastic character mm-hmm. and we see him riding on this bicycle like really struggling with it uh he ends up getting picked up by my 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 I, it's hard to say that he's my favorite character in the movie, <laughs> but I just love, I fucking love Phil Silvers. Phil Silvers was so good. I, I think there's, there is nobody today that I think could do what Phil Silvers did. 
properly. I think Steve Martin comes the closest. And that's not because he did the Sergeant Bilko movie. It's more just that uh, Silvers was really good at switching allegiance and really like it was the air of just ridiculous. Like the ridiculous oozes out of Phil Silvers in the strangest way. Um, he was such a good he, scumbag. Uh, like <laughs> He was... <laughs> Uh, just I uh, god damn it like a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum is wonderful and he's just he's a guy who and the Phil Silver show which is you know Sergeant the Sergeant Bilko show but they just call it the Phil Silver show uh, it, it's that's one of those like things when you can watch moments from it like you see what he was able to pull off with his comedy and in this film he is I I would argue given like the ultimate uh, over characterization of his uh of his uh shtick with Otto Meyer um he pulls over to the side and uh, Jonathan Winters tells him the story and he's about to take Jonathan Winters with him but then he tells him you shouldn't leave that bike in the middle of the road Jonathan Winters gets out to throw the bike into the bushes and (laughs) Phil Silvers just drives off (laughs) (laughs) so good beautiful moment and he ends up at the but he he gets his comeuppance he gets a flat tire and he ends up at the gas station Ray and Irwin's gas station uh he pulls over and he does this beautiful banter back and forth with the uh, the gas station attendants played by Marvin Kaplan and Ar- Arnold Stang. He's just going like, if you don't have a, if you don't, uh, if you can't, uh, if, if you can't fix the flat tire, fix the spare. If you can't fix the spare, give me a new tire. Come on, what's your hurry? Hurry, 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 He's hurry. So He's so good. Just, it's this timing. It's his timing. He is doing the shyster shtick at rapid speed. It is so fantastic that he is like his his timing is just off the charts. By the time Winters catches up with him. He's still in the middle of his shyster routine before he even notices that Winters has uh-huh. entered into his area. So it's kind of the beauty of this photography is is that you as the audience can see what's coming, but the characters can't. It's kind of like a it's the reverse of what a horror movie does, where you see something in the distance, but it'll then disappear. This one just keeps emerging and emerging and emerging. Well, it's like a play, and, like yeah. the stuff that's working in the background that the people in the foreground they don't even see it. It, it's very much like this. This movie is. It's really. It feels like a play because there's constantly things going in the in the frame, out of the frame, and just it's constantly moving. Yeah, and it doesn't and it doesn't let up for a minute. And then, um, you know, there's a couple things that plot happen. Like this film does intersect and interweave the different stories. But um, we're gonna since we're at the gas station, let's talk about what happens at this oh, gas man. station. Um, so this is your favorite scene in the oh. film, as we've been kind of alluding to through your enthusiasm <laughs> for it. And I don't, and I don't blame you. This is a beautifully wonderful example of not just great comedy but great cinema. Um, so uh, <laughs> Phil Silver's claims that John that, that Pike is a mental es- escaped mental patient and that he's a doctor, <laughs> and he gets he gets uh, Ray and Irwin to knock him out with uh, with a fucking tire, <laughs> and uh, he. <laughs> Tells him like I'm gonna send for help, but you guys did a wonderful thing, a wonderful, wonderful thing. thing. And he just drives off, just drives off, and leaves Ray and Irwin. And and um, in the alternate version, uh, in the extended version, there is a moment with Kaplan and Stang going like, "Well, we need to tie him up." And like, a lot of what happens in the extended cut versus the theatrical cut is extensions of scenes. Um, and then there's like a few scattered deleted scenes where you only have production photographs, but this is one of them where the scene just draws out for another 30 seconds 
all it I mean I'm, I'm glad they took it out because it doesn't really matter but it is just another way to watch more footage of Kaplan and Stang doing what they do uh, but they tie him up to a post in the gas station <laughs> this is a new this is a new gas station by the way they just opened it's why they can't lend Milton Burl their truck um, to uh, uh, to to the chase because they just opened and they need that truck for their business which is why they end up going with Terry Thomas um, and uh, so they tie him up to this post Jonathan Winters wakes up and he's you know he's just angry as shit that Otto Meyer did this to him he's not thrilled and he's not thrilled and uh, uh, Ray and Irwin are trying to subdue him and whatnot. and it ends up with it's going to be hard to describe every moment of it but I can I can give you the starting points he's tied to this pole Jonathan Winters (laughs) moves his body in such a way that he breaks the beam and lunges into a wall and uh, the the way it's set up as the stunt is is that when he falls through the wall, it creates a cutout that looked like he, you know, uh, like a, a profile cutout mm-hmm. of his whole body. Um, and it's a be- actually I, I freeze framed it a bunch to see where the lines are in it, and it, you can see them. But because that mo- scene moves so quickly, you'll never notice it unless you freeze frame it. Um, and then they proceed to destroy this gas station while fighting. Um, the the way I can describe this for modern viewers in a way that might appeal to them is that. If the Avengers were made in 1965, you would have had Jonathan Winters play the Hulk because he literally oh, yeah. just does Hulk stuff. That's what it he is. Throws he throws the them Hulk around like rag dolls. He threw yeah, the short, wall, short. hits them off the wall, like flips them, like suplexes them, <laughs> like throws them out the window. <laughs> like these guys, these short, guys would be of, dead if it wasn't a movie. Short of short of Vince McMahon saying this is Royal Rumble, you would assume oh, yeah. that this is uh, a wrestling match essentially Absolutely. with just character dress up. And Arnold Stang and Marvin Kaplan are, you know, like amongst everything, like this scene is primarily constructed with the stunt people and the stuntmen in the scene. However, there are these moments where you see Arnold Stang, Marvin Kaplan, and Jonathan Winters, all of whom are not stunt people. Now, Mar- uh, Winters was in the Marines, so he had physical training of sorts, but he was not doing every single stunt. Now, Kaplan and Stang are certainly not doing stunts, no. um, if you look at who no. they are. <laughs> uh, wonderful comedians, not going to win an athletic competition whatsoever, which is fine. You know, you don't need to. Um, you're Arnold Stang and Marvin Kaplan. You don't need to fucking prove anything. And um, so, but they destroy this gas station. This whole brand new gas station is ruined. The most of this set design and construction is all cons- uh, consistent of balsa wood and things that the one thing that the HD does do it to it to this day is that you can kind of tell that everything's a little like less secure, but you don't look at it as flimsy. Um, it just it's beautifully collapsing the way it should, so it doesn't feel like or it feeds the joke. Oh well, they just put. Yeah, so yeah, it feeds the joke. So it doesn't feel like you're looking at balsa wood essentially breaking, which is what is happening. But goddamn it, if there's not like a beautiful collage of set design, stunt coordination, sound effects working in one scene, well, special together, effects and also too, because no yeah, special effects too, because <laughs> yeah, the, the the apparently the water tower didn't fall at the right time. Yeah, so like half the frame is like from a different shot, which is wonderful. 
Yeah, which is a melding effect where you could kind of splice the film yeah. in a certain way that you can c- combine those shots. It's similar to how they have to do certain visual effects in the Universal era uh, for the horror films. And so this is a this is one of those things where I will like call it pure cinema as Hitchcock would describe mm-hmm. it and not feel unjustified because there's also very little dialogue in that scene whatsoever. Um, like if anything, it's just grunts and whatnot. And if you turn the sound off, you don't oh, need the sound, dude, but the, the sound adds to it. One of the best lines in the movie is when I forget which one of them says it, but he's like, he's like, we're gonna have to kill him. Yeah, <laughs> and they try to like it's, hit him with like the axle to the car, and it just doesn't work out well for them. <laughs> nope. And uh, I mean, honestly, if you weren't looking at each of the extended scenes, you would swear that Marvin Kaplan and Arnold Stang are dead oh, yeah. <laughs> by the end of this fucking uh, scene and whatnot. But uh, they, um, but yeah, Winters gets away. He ends up stealing the truck that was their pride and joy that they wouldn't let go. Um, and meanwhile, uh, uh, Ethel Merman and uh, Milton Berle and uh, Terry Thomas are all in the car. I mean, Dorothy Provine's there too, but let's face it, she is not. She, she, the one thing that Dorothy Provine, she is a wonderful straight woman in this situation. She's the most sympathetic character in this movie she is the one who's given the least to do in the movie, which kind of sucks because she's not an untalented actress whatsoever, but she is very much playing a super one dimensional character. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, it's no, that, definitely a bummer. She's really good in who's minding the mint and, um, and kiss the girls and make them die. And who, who's minding the mint is actually kind of a very similar mad, mad, mad world situation. It also has Milton Berle mm-hmm. in it and along with Bob Denver and Walter Brennan. So it's very much doing similar things there. Um, it's not, it's not my favorite, but it's a good film. But anyway, um, the, uh, uh, they, uh, Merman's character, reveals that like oh my god we could just call sylvester he's in uh he's he's in Santa rosita he's a lifeguard there <laughs> and they uh and they try to get in touch with uh sylvester marcus who's played by dick sean dick sean was a uh he, i'm gonna bring him up because i don't think many people would know him beyond this movie and another movie that we will do on this show um but he was like he was very much a he was a comedian kind of character actor um but his big characters that he would do were impersonations of counterculture so he's very specific to his era he's known for this movie and he's really really known and especially in my heart for playing Lorenzo Swain Dubois in The Producers but you would call him LSD Um, and he's the guy who plays Hitler in Springtime for Hitler in the original Producers Um, so when you watch The Producers and he's doing a bebop version of Hitler that's that's Dick Sean and it's it's, it's also really hilarious when he when he's playing that that movie's still fucking amazing Uh, and still and still works to you know poke nosies and Nazis in the face Um, but they they try to get in touch with him and uh with within this whole situation uh Ethel Merman makes a decision to uh they try to get in touch with him on the phone they can't get it and Terry Thomas keeps claiming that they're that they're wasting time and so they pull over the car and Ethel Merman just basically hijacks the keys because she thinks that it's smarter to get Sylvester to go get it and to keep trying that route because technically she's right if they do eventually get yeah. in touch with him and yeah. Sylvester can actually listen, <laughs> then <laughs> then he could go get the money. Um, but uh, but and this is actually where we get 
Jack Benny's cameo in the film. Uh, Jack Jack <laughs> Benny pulls up in what is essentially a, a Maxwell, which is the car that his character had on his radio and television show. And he says, having any trouble? Need a lift? And <laughs> Ethel Merman just goes, no, and we certainly don't need you. And it cuts to Jack, and it's clear that they're not in the same scene together. It's very clear that Jack came into the studio to shoot this. Um, mm-hmm. And he just, yeah. there's a slight pause, and you hear this cue in the music that is very much just intonations of his <laughs> theme song, Love and Bloom. And he just goes, well, and then he just drives off. And that's kind of the be- the beauty of that cameo oh. is that you get all of the Jack Benny character virtually within less than 30 seconds. Um, but... Um, uh, just completely insulted completely insulted here's the thing he had to beg to be in this movie even though rose had considered him as the ideal for the detective that's monitoring them throughout the uh the movie not the tracy character but he would have been like one of the like a detective on foot traveling and surveying him um and um which in the extended versions they basically have that in the form of those cops that keep uh, taking making uh, markers on them throughout the movie, but a lot of that is deleted to yeah. speed up the action. Um, so, but it's interesting. Like the, Benny was an example of the other comedians who were like, "You've got to find me a role for it." And Kramer's just like, "Well, we have this on the schedule, and I guess you would just do this today because why not?" <laughs> like we're putting everybody in here, but the kitchen sink itself. Um, so that all happens, and then meanwhile, like you know, at this point. Sid Caesar and uh, yep. uh, his wife get in a plane. They nearly they've chartered, they chartered a plane. this plane yep. and they nearly get into a crash on it because it's like an old biplane. <laughs> um, and it's a it's actually a pretty lovely scene. The extended version has a lot of footage that isn't shown of like after Sid oh, Caesar puts his foot down through the bottom after he's smashing up the <laughs> yeah, plane. Exactly. But they but they <laughs> they guy. land in Santa Rosita first. They get there and then they find themselves locked in a fucking tool shop <laughs> because they go after hours and get locked in the basement. And <laughs> so they spend oh. majority of the middle to, to last half of this movie stuck in this basement with Sid Caesar basically, as you said, pulling trailer moments out of his ass to create to find a way to get out of this tool shed. Um, it's it's a testament to Caesar as a physical comic and as a character comic because he's basically his his frustration lies within his anger towards his wife <laughs> and it it's just lovely to watch like it's really hard for me to make jokes in this episode about this movie because the movie's already doing the job of telling these jokes so we're kind of just reminiscing about the beauty of the like my favorite of it is when he gets electrocuted because it's kind of in the extended version it's interesting because there's more coverage of him with the electrical wire and uh, the effect of mm-hmm. the sparks yeah. is green and then it'll cut back to blue when it's the restored uh, like the the theatrical version so there so you kind of see where the scene is being formed and how much changed in the middle between mm-hmm. production and rap um he also fucking you know they they light that entire store on fire he finally oh my he, god he uses a blowtorch to try to get the door uh, door the door lock yeah, open yeah, and yeah. sets the whole staircase on fire and the building on fire, um, and <laughs> yeah, you pretty much is trying to blow their way out. Yep, and then they get <laughs> he gets out and uh, they, where they get out and uh, they end up getting a cab that takes them to where we're going to end up. Meanwhile, 
uh, Mickey Rooney and uh, Buddy oh. Hackett have uh, are trying to charter a plane, and they end up bothering a person at a country club, which I don't really mind because fuck country club people. But uh, it is interesting that like the amount of time they're committing to trying to get this drunk to fly them to Santa Rosita. Oh, he is incredibly intoxicated. He is absolutely fucking smashed. Like it is. It oh, is yeah. absolutely bananas. And he's doing that. Um, I wanted to, I'm trying to remember his name in the movie. Cause he's, uh, it's the airplane. Oh, he's J- Tyler Fitzgerald. He's played by Jim Backus. Uh, Jim Backus is the guy who does the voice of Mr. Magoo. <laughs> uh, and he's oh, also, um, he's, uh, Thurston Howell. The third on Gilligan's Island is like a big thing he's known for too. But, um, something mm-hmm. may, people may not know is that he is the, um, uh, father of James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, um, and but the imp- oh, that's but the true. Imp- Damn, the, imp- yeah. the impression that he's doing is is very much that uh, upper class, upper class, mid like East Coast elite, like and he's but he's just he's just a fun natured guy who wants to knock back an old fashioned while you're flying a heavy piece of uh aviation equipment as we all do like i know you like to get drunk when you fly your plane brandon you know like (laughs) always i mean i have to be drunk to even think about doing it exactly so do you john travolta all the guys who are pilots but i harrison ford all the (laughs) time you know i mean everybody says that's why he crashes i think that's what happens when he's sober and flying you know so (laughs) i i agree the buzz wears off and down he goes exactly like oh shit i didn't have enough today oh golf course here i come um but so yeah no so he like so they get he they get him into the plane and then he he uh they, he wants to make his own drink so he gives Buddy Hackett the controls and then Buddy Hackett waves the plane around so much that he knocks uh, Jim Backus to the back of the plane and knocks him out and so he and Mickey mm-hmm. Rooney are trapped uh, on this plane and so they have to get <laughs> guided down um uh by Paul Ford and Carl Reiner amongst all people. Um, Carl Reiner is like, he's been interviewed a bunch for this movie and uh, he was there for panels at it like near the end of his life. But uh, Reiner described that there's a scene where like there's the exterior where the plane is coming and like nearly dodges him. They actually had the plane coming by him on that exterior shot. And, you know, before he's doing the scene, he goes makeup and he's making a joke. Cause like, you know, actors need makeup, oh, yeah. right? You can't see him. He's so far yeah, away. And in the scene, they do it. The plane flies by him. They yell cut. And Carl Reiner went underwear <laughs> because he nearly shit well, his pants. Dude, <laughs> yeah. Cause he, he was close enough that he, if he made some effort, he might've been able to touch the plane. Yep. Yeah. It was pretty. It was pretty close. <laughs> Fun fact: I was not only a genius in comedy, working with Mel Brooks and Steve Martin. I was also a daredevil and a badass. So take that, yeah. other people. Uh, <laughs> so you know, like it, Reiner's a fucking legend in God, and this is just another example. He's only in this movie for like a total of maybe f- three minutes, but he's still awesome in it. He makes them count. Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> does. Um, and also within this, as the plane lands, as they do land the plan, plane, that's when we get our Three Stooges cameo when you clearly know that this uh, this this uh, fire rescue operation will not go well just because we see them oh. there, which is kind of the beauty of that joke is that because you see them mm-hmm. in that moment, 
you already put in your head what's going to happen if you know the Three Stooges at this point. Now, if I showed this to my nephew who has no idea what the Three Stooges are, let alone anybody else in this movie, he won't get the joke. But we get the joke because we're among that. We, it feels like we're among that last generation that knows what the Three Stooges is beyond that yeah. Peter Peter and Bobby Fairley movie, which was not good. Um that I Ooh, went to the, the yeah, I went that was, to the, that I'll tell you when Larry David is the funniest part of your movie playing a nun you know there's issues um but um there is a funny joke about them actually being sexy dudes reminding people not to do the stunts at home I'm like oh that's cute anyway <laughs> um but so anyway they they get there and I will say before we move away from them Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney are a really wonderful comic team there with basically Mickey Rooney playing the straight role and Buddy Hackett being your he if this is Abbott and Costello, Mickey is Bud and uh, Buddy is oh. Lou, and they do really, really good work in it. Uh, I think they're like it's funny. I, I think if you're talking to comedy aficionados, you know they're they're really looking toward Hackett. But I do think Rooney was very, very once again he's proving why he was a star for so many years. Um, I know he had turbulent later years, but he was never not a star even up till the day he died. Like he was never not on. Like he was yeah, eternally dude. on. Um, absolutely like him and buddy Hackett in this movie like their own they, it's like their own little buddy comedy like within this and movie it's spinoffs that I want like I honestly they're so I honestly good do want those spinoffs with it regardless of like anything else they could have added but um, let's go back to Phil Silvers for a second because he has my favorite visual gag of the movie oh, man. so he is driving and then he picks up a hitchhiker um, who needs to get medicine to his home he drives way too much out of his way uh, down a large steep hill, drops the guy off, tries to get back <laughs> up this hill, can't get up it. Little boy who lives at that house that he dropped the guy off at says, I can show you another way. And so he gets the kid in the car after promising to. Just takes a kid. Oh, Just takes oh, a yeah. kid. And, and, and by the way, he's, he's <laughs> doing like, if you do this, I'll give you a dollar. And the kid goes, I'll take three dollars. And he goes, three. Why? Super he, sketchy. He goes, three. Why, you little sure, kid. Come on in the car. Like, he's. He so sketchy. He, again, he is so good at being so sleazy. It is ridiculous. Oh. So he drives all around these up and down these hills nearly like it's stunt driving in its finest so it's not silvers but like you see them going down these steep hills and whatnot and the payoff of this gag is that he uh, <laughs> it has to go across a river in order to get to the main road and the and he drives the car in after being called a chicken by the little boy he drives the car forward with the other with the kid on the other end of the um, of the river and the car starts sinking in, and he goes, "You, t you didn't tell me the water wasn't shallow. You told you, sh it's not. Oh, you crazy! He just, he's, he's boiling so much that he can't complete a sentence. That's why I love it, is because as he's doing that, he's getting lower <laughs> and lower and lower. And then the, f and we cut away after seeing everybody's stories are inter intersecting and colliding at this point. Um, and at this yep. point, Terry Thomas and Milton Berle have split away from." Um, uh, Ethel Merman and Dorothy Provine. So they're they're on their own little journey. They get into fisticuffs um, over um, uh, over amongst other things discussions about America versus Britain. Which <laughs> yep. did you? And at this point, Pike Pike has picked up um, Ethel Merman. Yes, I mean, right. Yeah, they're, they're, they've he's yeah. picked them up. Yep. And so uh, and uh, wait, I will say like, but. The, this is when we hit the intermission point is like after everybody's basically hitting their 
their their their peak frustration and or danger point. Uh, and 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 it, say, will they make it? Yeah, exactly. Like I mean, literally, one of the last things you're seeing in the basement stuff is stuff going awry <laughs> and, and, and things on fire. And uh, in the prior to all that, though, Terry Thomas and um, uh, Milton Berle get into a conversation about America versus Britain. That if there's anything in this movie that is extremely outdated, it's just this one moment, oh. and it's when Terry Thomas talks about how all American men are uh, are um, emasculated and when you listen to Terry Thomas deliver this the, the this guy is just a men's rights advocate all across the board he is like laying into the problems with women having control and authority in a society I'm like this does not hold up very well <laughs> No, no, it's it's like a lot of things from the '60s, yeah, right? Very it's, much like a, a, you you pluck it out of like the time, drop it here. It's like oh. And what's what's interesting about this film is that this film is kind of taking it at both ends because it's not it's not de- demonizing counterculture, but it's also not really addressing it. But it still has a lot of those values of the era that were still prominent and wouldn't really be broken down until the American new wave comes in and you start seeing much more developed films. Um, not, not perfect. Still a lot of ways to go. We we're still having a long way to go today, but this film is still kind of within that older tradition. So there are bound to be outdated, uh, references or opinions or, and I think what the reason that this film, it like, it doesn't like, uh, detract from this film is because it is very much played for comedy because they're, they're, uh, insulting each other's respective countries in this weird way that is not insulting so much as it's just, you can tell they're both petty and fed up with each other. (laughs) Um, well, and, and to, to be fair too, it's like, at least when I watch this movie, I think the framework of the script sets it up that uh, you know the Terry uh, Thomas character, he, he's not a good guy. No, he's like not. the reaction is not like, oh wow, he's saying something that resonates, and that that's what you should yeah, think. Be- no, it's very much of like he says this, and like <laughs> the reaction is like, oh, what an asshole. Yeah, exactly. That's that's again that, that's a better way of pointing it out. Like, is that he's. You know, like, and especially like, he's not someone to be admired. Yeah, and also, you have to keep in mind this is a movie made at a time in America where you know there's definitely a lot of pro-Americanism. There's still a lot of Eisenhower values and stuff and such. So there is this sense of what he's doing is basically when you insult the U.S. of A., you insult all of us, kind of thing. Like that's when and Milton Berle has the line. He says, "Like you saying something wrong about America?" Like that. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, it's kind of played for laughs, but it's also kind of pointed out as a bit of a commentary on how not just how Terry Thomas acts, but also how Burl acts. So like, th- there is something in there, but who cares? Because fist fight. <laughs> oh yeah, it, yeah, it completely just devolves into like breaks down into this fist fight of like childlike, like it's ch- so childish, my, my, <laughs> like what they're doing to each my other. My favorite part of it is when Milton Burl stubs his toe and goes, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and then he well, kicks, it, it really shows. And then Terry Thomas kicks him in the shins and he goes, cheater, cheater, cheater. <laughs> well, yeah, right. So it's like, it really does show that like these grown men have turned into gigantic man children. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, again, like every other character in this movie, there's nothing really to be admired. Yeah. No, not at all. They're, none of them should be admired whatsoever. Like, they're all very terrible, again, except for 
Dorothy Provine's character. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, the Emitter mission happens, and actually, there's something cool about the production of this film. Like, there's an, in the interview, uh, one of the interviews, Stanley Kramer talks about how he wanted the movie to keep going even through the intermission. So, uh, it's not. Um, it's there's no real uh, audio dialogue for it still available to this day. But in the extended cut, when they go to the intermission, they put up a title card that said uh, "Police Radio Chatter," and so that would have been the radio chatter that would have been catching the audience up, or like recapping everything for them. And then they start kicking in the musical themes that play for another two minutes that then bleed into the scene where. Sid Caesar is about to blow the door out. So, uh, and so basically like a lot of what we discussed happens after the intermission, but that's kind of like this interesting thing about the 70 millimeter experience and why Quentin Tarantino was trying to replicate it with hateful eight is that, you know, it was a night out at the theater. So like Kramer was trying Mm -hmm. to do everything he could pull out all the stops to create an experience, which is something that, I mean, obviously with COVID-19, we are not having that today, but even before then, like hateful eight was the last one to really do this, like in a big, big way. Um, I I imagine that tenant was slated to do such things. Um, but then COVID happened, but like also like anytime Nolan does a film, it's usually a 70 millimeter print, regardless of a roadshow experience. Um, so, but like hateful eight was designed that way. Like when you went into hateful eight, you got uh, a booklet that would have essentially been your program for the evening. And it was kind of cool. Cause I snagged two of them, but, um, <laughs> uh, I had, dude, I, I grabbed a couple of those yeah, too. So, and I've still got them in the, in my storage, but that that's again, one of those things like this mad, mad, mad world was not just a comedy spectacular. It was a comedy event. Like this was a thing you would go to. Like one of the things that Billy Crystal talks about in the Q and a that they did at the 70 millimeter Roadshow is man. Like we, like we were stoked to see this movie and this was like a, you know, he had talked about his father, father had passed away earlier prior to them going to it but like it was like seeing every one of your favorite baseball players in like a single field and whatnot it's it's just one of these massive events and whatnot but anyway long story short we go back we're so we're at the point in this film now where everybody collides um well, we come in from the uh, the intermission, yeah. right? With uh, isn't Sid Caesar and uh, <laughs> are they about ready to like blow their way yeah, out? Yeah, they blow their way out. They eventually <laughs> get out. They find themselves blowing through the wall of a Chinese laundry on the other side of the building and escaping <laughs> that way. They get a cab in with one of the guys who um, the the cab um, driver um, uh, from uh, in this scene is Leo Gorsi. Leo Gorsi was um, a oh. prominent member of the Dead End Kids. And then the East Side Kids, and then eventually in the Bowery Boys, which are basically gangster children or gangster young adult movies, where you had these kids who were like you'd get into gangster activity, but they'd have to learn to re- learn a lesson at the end or reform at the end. Um, if you watch Angels with Dirty Faces, Leo Gorsi's in the movie. He's one of the dead end kids that gets taught by Jimmy Cagney to play basketball, uh, but they still admire Rocky <laughs> Sullivan. So. Um, uh, so, but anyway, yeah, they escape. Um, like I said, Buddy and Hack, Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney make it out of their plane, and they get <laughs> they get in the cab and go toward the park area. Uh, the with with no none other than 
You know, yep. they, they, yep. it was a Rochester, yes. right? So this is this is a moment that we're going to talk about because I, this is one of many conversations that I want to eventually have about this person. But um, he's not the only cab driver. We also have Peter Falk, <laughs> who yep. is uh, very, very much a fast talking delivery machine. Uh, Paul, Peter Falk. I, I don't think there was an unfunny bone in his body throughout all of his life. And that's why he had Columbo in his back pocket like it was nothing. Um, but yeah. Well, he was funny. Just as a person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a very um, uh, uh, upfront human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. Upfront is a good to, way of putting to it. To say the fucking least. Uh, Peter, Peter <laughs> Folk. Uh, I, I, God, I want to watch Columbo again. That's, it's a long... It, that show ran for fucking ever. Um, but um, anyway... They get into uh, they get into a cab. They each get into cabs with um, Peter Falk and Eddie Rochester Anderson. Um, this this actually brings up. So Jack Benny was discussed earlier. Eddie Rochester Anderson was primarily known as Rochester Van Jones on the Jack Benny program. Um, he began his appearances um, in 1937, and he did it all the way up until the television show ended in 1965. Um, Eddie Anderson was a uh, at the time, a very, very prominent African-American uh, comedian, comedian and actor. He worked in vaudeville, worked his way up. Um, he was all over films of the late, uh, mid to late 30s and early 40s um, before really kind of cementing himself into that Jack Benny crew. Um, he's in Gone with the Wind. Um, he's in Man About Town with Jack. He's in Buck Benny Rides Again with Jack. He's in Love Thy Neighbor with Jack. He's in the movie Topper Returns. He's in Cabin in the Sky, which is a very, very wonderful film. Um, it, like in the respect of just like the way it's it's an all African American cast, directed by Vincent Minnelli. It's a Broadway. It's based off of a Broadway musical. It's it's a massive explosion of talent in that movie. Um, on Jack's program, he primarily played a um, a valet and a butler to Jack. Um, and it's it's a character it's a characterization that's yeah. outdated. Um, it's wrong then, wrong today. The thing about the show uh, that separated it. I mean, again, wrong then, wrong today. But this is the thing that made it transgressive for its era. Is that uh, Africa from a, from the African American um, point of it all? Rochester was the only actor in that time period that was able to talk back to a white person and get away with it. Uh, in mainstream entertainment so it was a big thing because the character of Jack Benny was written as such that he was despised by everybody so it was okay for mm-hmm. that that was that's how they got around it but you know there was still there's still a lot of con- uh, there's still a lot of discussion around that and there's a lot of research that you can go into where like not all or not everybody in the african-american community agreed with the portrayal that um, Eddie Anderson did a lot of people did a lot of people didn't it's a very it's a very it's a big issue that I'm not smart enough to solve um, wh- there's a future episode coming up with Flora uh, Leibowitz who is the head of the Jack Benny International Fa- International Jack Benny fan club where I will dig deeper into that but here here in this film at this time he had lost his hearing so there's a lot of delivery from Rochester that is very um, delayed um, so he's yeah, not giving yeah. back immediately to Falk. Um, and uh, Buddy Hackett talked about this in the behind the scenes where 
you know, he, he was having to come up with kind of cue words for himself. And, uh, they, and they, one of them finally got frustrated to the point, like, what the hell does that mean? Um, but it was, yeah, I forget what the word uh, was. Like, I know what you're talking me, about. This is something or something like that. Um, but that, that was his cue thing because uh, Eddie Anderson was a little hard of hearing. Like the main, the most work that he was doing up to that point was, um, stuff on Jack's show, certainly. Um, but also, um, <laughs> really kind of doing like isolated episodes of television shows like Dick Powell show bachelor father. Um, he was Noah in a, um, episode called the green pastures for Hallmark hall of fame, uh, red skeleton. What's my line? What's my line is a game show, but whatever, uh, a panel show. But anyway, so this, it's interesting to watch his delivery, but I will say that even though I'm aware of all this and even though what's going on with it, he's his, once you hear his voice, he is still on it, and he has one of my favorite deliveries regarding Ethel Merman's character <laughs> in the movie. Um, and also, it's one of the reasons why Ethel Merman is a perfect villain for this movie, because she hits him, and I don't like it. But anyway. I mean, let's be honest. Like, with everyone clamoring to be in this movie, the fact that, like, you know, Rochester, like, ended up, like, being, you know, one of the cabbies, I think is kind of, like, a positive. You know, yeah, it's, it's a I, testament to his popularity. Yeah, and it's like, you know, again, within the context of like everybody in Hollywood that was even deals and remotely, remotely in comedy was trying to get into this movie. And he has some pretty, he has like when he does show up on screen, he does have some important moments. Yeah, and here's the thing with his uh, characterization and uh, or his character in this film is, is that he is in this movie way more than you'd think he'd be given what they would have known about his able his ability to deliver lines at this time but also the fact that there are a lot of comedians in this film and there's a lot of there's little time like jack benny gets 30 seconds eddie anderson gets the last 30 minutes of the movie like that's a very big true. chunk of the movie where he and peter falk are key to the film um in terms of its comedic gags and setups like they are not the active characters but they are essential to driving them to certain points because there is one character that we haven't talked about yet but I've been saving him to help us wrap this up but we um we have to get them there but I will say that Eddie Anderson like he's he's to the point where he's he's part of the very final moments of that film and he is one of the last frames you see in that movie um and yep. it's funny that Eddie Eddie Anderson is a is a character actor and comedian who I feel like because of the character he played on Jack's show it's very hard for uh, people outside of f- those who are interested in entertainment are able to look at his work um, and judge it based off of what he's doing as a performer because there is a lot of baggage attached to it that needs to be reckoned with and that has uh, has a lot of um, uh, hurt and pain behind the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the type of role that Rochester served in the Jack Benny program. But the way I the way I try to approach it to people is go like, understand that the way it ended up being developed down the line and done for the majority of his run on the show was that uh, they wrote him in such a way that he was above, uh, he was above his boss. He was smarter than his boss. He was better than his boss. Yes. And so that was very much a situation where, you were showing a uh, a positive outlook mm-hmm. uh, without that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, we'll get back to um, the uh, these terrible white people in this movie. Um, they. 
<laughs> they are. That's, that's, that's the thing you notice. Like all of them are white, <laughs> and all of them are terrible. You, I mean, you think? Um, I mean, white privilege is pretty much just sprinkled around Hollywood. I don't think Stanley Kramer intended it initially, but he's still sending a message all those years later. Um, but anyway, so everybody collides back. Eventually, Milton Berle and Terry Thomas collide into Dick Sean, Ethel Merman, and Dorothy Provine, and they all. Everybody heads towards Santa Rosita Park, and they all start searching for the Big W. They keep running past the Big W all this time. Every, they finally decide to all join forces and look for it. Um, and what, meanwhile, Dorothy Provine is left alone at a water fountain, except she's not alone because there's been an old man wandering around the park looking at them. Now, <laughs> in order to tell the story of this old man, we have to Tarantino this and go back to the beginning of this movie because we haven't talked about um, Captain Culpepper um, played by <laughs> Spencer Tracy. You see, like it's what's hard about talking about Spencer Tracy's character in this film is that first you really need to talk about everything that happens in the movie to understand Culpepper's character um, on a level beyond just the surface. Um, but this is Spencer Tracy. Now, everybody talks about Spencer Tracy in this movie as in like, well, this is one of the few comedies he ever did or like he had never done anything like this before. And it's like, yes, that's true. He was in a lot of screwball comedies with Catherine Hepburn. In fact, those things he's the most famous for um, in a lot of circles. So uh, it's not beyond him to know what comedic timing is. It's just that yeah, this movie yeah. is out of its mind versus woman of the year, which is very, very um, traditionally screwball romantic comedy this movie is yeah this is bonkers yeah, this man. movie like, this movie is uh clinically insane for all the best reasons but yeah he plays captain tg culpepper um at the beginning of the new movie as uh, everything has unfolded with smiler grogan it's it turns out that smiler grogan um stole that money 15 years ago and spencer tracy's been hot on his trail so that the fact that he's died but um he had been following his trail and he has uh, always been convinced that the money was buried in Santa Rosita. Um, <laughs> and so he convinces the police chief to uh, essentially let him um, not apprehend the people that were at the crash that we've just been talking about this whole time, but to let them play this out, <laughs> which yeah, that's right. unethical and police behavior. <laughs> meanwhile, Culpepper has been on this case for 15 years. Yeah. He he's, hasn't let this go, and like yeah. it's to the point where he's just like, no, 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 let let them run. Like that's the thing that like it's the one logic issue from a today standpoint that makes very little sense. Where like this is the one thing I will give Rat Race. Technically, the setup for Rat Race makes more sense than this, <laughs> because. But this movie, look at the title of this yeah, film. It's insane. It's a mad, 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 mad world, and so right? therefore so everyone is motivated by some horrible like i mean essentially they all have like flawed like moral compasses yeah. right even Cul like culpepper's decision to just let this play yeah. out and culpepper um, is established as an honest cop he has never made a bad yes. move in his life the the uh his he, but he was lectured by one of the other cops that he had to keep it fair yeah, his his sin is pride <laughs> his sin is pride that's that's what yes. he starts off with and then his sin devolves into greed based out of damaged pride and like then kevin spacey shows oh, up oh god god damn detective culpepper <laughs> <laughs> that ah, god that'd be really weird that'd be really weird if spencer tracy went what's in the box what's in the box oh, <laughs> oh and it's jimmy durant and then it's jimmy durant's oh, head that's... going like how you doing spence <laughs> 
<laughs> terrible. Oh my god! So bad. Oh my god! I, I just made a new version of Seven Guys. You're welcome. Um, no, but uh, he, uh, yeah. So he, he's, he's getting all the information, by the way, from Andy Devine, um, at he, who is the, uh, the uh, scraggly voiced um, Crockett County uh, sheriff. Um, that is uh, like the rather rotund guy. Fun fact about this, um, Brandon. Andy Devine was not only a regular cast member of the Jack Benny program, friend of Clark Gable, and Western star in films like Stagecoach, he was also the mayor of Van Nuys in the 30s. <laughs> Andy De- But dude, he's everything. His, his small the, cameo, you don't realize how big a legacy is there of, of, of crazy ridiculous stuff. Uh, and actually behind him in the station at Crockett County is Stan Freeberg, um, who we all know either from Looney Tunes or from radio or from advertisements of any kind. And Stan Freeberg actually... Um, uh, was the writer and creator of the advertisements for this film, the theatrical trailers and everything. He was the head of the ad campaign, and he was doing it so well that Stanley Kramer said, how how big is your shirt size? And he told him his shirt size, and he's like, great, you're going to be in the movie. And so he just put him back there. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Um, and so uh, anyway, uh, Culpepper has been following their path. He's letting this play out. Meanwhile, he's telling the police chief hey i want to uh, after this is over uh, i need you to use this to convince the 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 the, gover- the governor's office that i am worthy of a pension upgrade and also when this is over i want to go on a vacation with my wife ginger two weeks in hawaii get away from it all as he makes these plans for it he's on the phone with his wife and his daughter trying <laughs> to solve a family issue that looks that sounds like it's it's clear that that spencer tracy as good a cop as he is he's not a good dad because he clearly can't communicate with his daughter and (laughs) and oh yeah as much chaos that he has is like that he has in his professional life it's just as bad in his personal life if you look at spencer tracy in this movie physically like he's already near the ropes and whatnot guess who's coming to dinner ends up being his final film and he's very um He's at the point in that movie where he's reading from um, he's he's either reading from cue cards or having things kind of placed around the room so that he would mm-hmm. read those cards and then use it as acting motivation to make it look like he's making acting choices. It's really to cover up the fact that he's not really good at memorization at this point. Um, this is kind of near that point. He's still memorizing stuff, but he's having trouble with it. You can tell he's very much on the ropes. And Tracy had his own issues in life too, so the uh, the stress on his face grows even larger than you'd ever expect. The my favorite part of that whole confrontation with his family is where he puts the two phones together and be like, "Okay, Ginger, oh, <laughs> Bobby, Bobby so Joe, good. talk to your mother." <laughs> Bobby Joe, Bobby Joe, <laughs> Bobby Joe, Bobby Joe, Bobby Joe, listen to your mother. <laughs> like, it's so good. Um, so yeah, it's. He's a man at the end of his rope. Yeah, I know. He's he's, he's like, lost it. What what am I gonna he, do? He's here? tired of being good for no reason, and that's when yeah, yeah. when when the police commissioner or when the police chief finally tells him the commissioner won't allow uh, a upgraded pension, and that his wife and his daughter are all upset. You can see the look on his face devolve into what the fuck am I doing? What is going on? <laughs> yeah. and you almost see in his eyes. Wait a minute. I know where there's $350,000 and then that's added to when he's Mm -hmm. looking at the map of the progress of everybody. And then he just longingly looks at the place, Mexico on the map. (laughs) And then he says this line, it's, it's, it's a, it's a ridiculous line that is delivered beautifully by him, which he's like, you know what I wish I had a big chocolate sundae. (laughs) Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> well, dude, I love the moment where he's getting into the car yeah. with the other uh, police officer, and he's looking at the building, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Do you forget something?" And he's like, "No, no, no." <laughs> he's done. He's, he's done he's with tired it. Of Keep in mind, his day began with him throwing his hat accidentally out the window and having it run over by Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, like, and you know, get his numbers, yeah, get, get, his, get the numbers. And, you know, for all the problems that Jerry Lewis had as a person, when I look at that face, it is very hard not to giggle my ass off. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, dude, it's, like back, like if if anybody deals in if anybody deals in complete hero worship, yeah, at some point. Everybody's gonna let you down. Yeah, exactly. Nobody, nobody's perfect. This is a. And it's a clear example. Some people are way less perfect than others. Oh yeah, yeah. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Jerry Lewis is a situation where, like, I respect his work a lot, but I have to separate it out from Jerry as a person because Jerry Lewis was a bit of an you asshole. You have to, um, in a lot of ways. But um, that doesn't mean he's still one of the last vanguards of old time radio that unfortunately left us not too long ago. So, um, but again, it's just a moment, but he's so brilliant in it, crossing his eyes and moving his face. Like Mm -hmm. it's beautiful. But anyway, yeah, Culpepper is at the end of his rope. So he's basically decided as this day has gone on, I'm going to steal this fucking money. So he makes a plan to uh, rendezvous and intersect with the people who are at the park and he tells the other cops, like, when I give the signal, I don't want any cops in the area. I don't want to see a single cop. So you as the audience already know he's going to steal this money. It's not even a question. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like a bomb under the table to a certain respect. We know it's there, but the characters that we've been following for the majority of the movie don't know that. So that's where it kind of like the tension kind of sets up this beautiful moment where we'll jump over to the park here where – Mm-hmm. He's watching everybody. He meets up with Dorothy Provine, and Dorothy Provine's just like, look, I think I know where it is. I just saw the big W, and so yeah. if I could get the money, you can take half, I can take half, and then I can have enough money to run away from Russell, from my mom, from everybody, and we have enough to join a convent. <laughs> and oh, Spencer and, Tracy, and look, I wanted her to get it. I did. I'm like, she's trying to get away from the idiots. Well, that's... Please give her the money. I love how she says a convent and Spencer Tracy reacts going like, a convent, eh? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. goofy. Like bull- it's a, it, bullshit. It's, it gets kind of a beautiful moment. But um, but anyway, the big W is found by Jonathan Winters. And what I would argue is one of the most iconic shots of this movie is Jonathan Winters chasing after um, uh, Phil. Phil Silver's Otto Meyer. And then he yeah. just, the look on his face He's figured it it's out. So good. He turns around. It sticks on that one shot, and he moves right towards these palm trees that are angled in such a way that they form a big W. We found the big W, Brandon. Congratulations. Yes, we and, did. Uh, it's beautiful. Now, did you know this? A little, little tidbit here. Did you know that every in and out has an X made out of two palm trees? Because the founder of in and out his favorite movie... Is a, it's a mad, mad, mad world. I did not know that. So then why is it an X then? Yeah. Does that have to do with the Christian thing of in and out or <laughs> No, no, just um it's like well I can't he up. just put he just put two, he's like, I can't put four. Okay. It's gonna take up too much room. But he, he there's two X's. Yeah, there's two palm trees. Yep, that make that make an X. Yeah. And every one of them apparently has has that whole setup. Yeah. Well he's also like and that Stanley Kramer will sue me and I don't really want Stanley Kramer coming out of my house yelling at me, so <laughs> Listen. Well, in LA, I don't think he would. You know, In and Out's a huge thing in LA. Could you, huge could you imagine though Stanley Kramer coming to the guy, the owner of In and Out's house with a bat? 
It'd be a just being like, listen. It'd be an interesting, uh, you know, turn of events. What I'm about to do goes against every message I send in my movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but your lights are about to get punched out, Mister In and Out guy. <laughs> How dare you steal my ideas? Oh. Just start smashing his windows. <laughs> He's like, but I like the movie. It's my favorite movie. He's like, I don't give a shit. And that doesn't that doesn't give you the right to steal. Um, <laughs> they said I couldn't make a comedy. You're not going to take this from me. Bosley wouldn't get away with it. Neither will you, In and Out guy. <laughs> Just start smacking you, burger peddling son of a bitch. <laughs> And then he takes out a knife and he just goes, you know something, William Rose? I think this just might be my masterpiece. <laughs> uh, directed. Uh, this is this is a Stanley Kramer biopic directed by Quentin Tarantino, apparently. Um, but no. So, yeah. They, yes, it sounds like it. Yeah, they all find the W. They all gather around. They all dig for it. At one point, Dick Silver tells uh, Jonathan Winters that he doesn't want him digging with him. <laughs> um, and... Uh, they're digging. As they're digging, Culpepper comes up to from behind them, and there's this beautiful, other beautiful shot of it's. Uh, it's not so much the composition, but it's just how long he holds on it. Of Spencer Tracy standing there, looking around, and Buddy Hackett turns his head slowly and just looks at Spencer Tracy for a good like minute, <laughs> and yeah, tries to yeah. suss out what the hell he's doing. And it's so beautiful when he finally breaks and smiles. It's like the most beautiful reveal <laughs> off of Buddy Hackett's face, um, and then. They dig it up. They find the suitcase. They're trying to figure out the division of it. Phil Silver's once again, tr- again. tries to tries to, back con- to this. tries to con everybody by counting himself twice in the lineup, and then Culpepper basically admits, like, "Look, guys, I I'm a I'm a captain of the police, and here's what's going on." Um, and uh, these guys are all in big trouble legally. One of the things that I love about this movie's logic is that much. This is something that I've only found really extended in a movie like Keanu recently, where the characters who cause destruction in a comedy are actually technically responsible for their actions in this movie. They describe the fact that they are like wanted on several charges of like property destruction uh, and mm-hmm. like a, like uh, accessorism and stuff like that. So there's like there's a lot of like crimes that they are guilty of, and like the way that. Uh, and like and and not to mention the car they own not, it. yeah not to mention the car chase in uh in LA county which you see figure eights of cars zooming in and out there's a stunt driving this is a stunt driving mm-hmm. bonanza in this movie and that might be one of the big cappers of it is watching all this choreography and this like ballet of cars doing turns and spins like it is it is mind-boggling there's this, the section before they get to to Santa Rosita Park has cars moving around roundabouts and u-turn areas and just it's a ballet of cars like fast and furious owes a lot to this movie in terms of how how ridiculous you can get and i and i would have to imagine that somebody on the fast and furious team would acknowledge that this film is a reason that you can do what they do today because there is the choreography in this is even above Bullet, I'd argue. And Bullet is a movie where driving is huge. Uh, and Vanishing Point, too. Vanishing Point has some of the greatest stunt work for cars in it, but like the choreography of Dude. this is just mind-blowing. French Connection? French Connection has Man. a great one, yeah. They all owe a debt to Stanley Kramer in some respect because of what they're able to do with this in a way that's not uh, rear projection, which would have been the Hitchcock route. Um, so, mm-hmm. th- so it's fantastic. But anyway... Culpepper basically suggests to them, well, why don't you all turn yourselves in? They'll go easy on you. And then he gets away with the money. And well, for, for a moment, for a moment, but they all catch on to it. They all get into two separate (laughs) cars. So one cab is being driven by uh, Rochester and the other cab is being driven by Peter Falk. 
and um, they all eventually corner him uh, behind a building. And uh, meanwhile, the police commissioner or the police chief has basically assured through blackmail <laughs> that he's going to get Culpepper's pension doubled or tripled, actually. Yep. Um, and then as he's trying to deliver that news, he's finding out that Culpepper uh, was seen driving 90 miles an hour. So he has to make the call arrest Captain Culpepper. So Culpepper's now a well, wanted man. And because he was being pursued by the two other vehicles, yes, exactly. which is definitely a red flag. Yeah, exactly. So automatically they're just <laughs> like, well, I think we know what happened is somebody decided to finally make his first bad decision. So um, Culpepper gets out of the car. He's running away. Like he's being cornered at every turn in this alley behind this building. At one point he, uh, he pushes Ethel Merman into a pile of garbage uh, or into a box oh, of garbage. The funny terrible. in the extended version, he actually knocks her down once and offers to pick her up and then runs away from her so that when that scene happens where he pushes her, that's the second time. And this time he decides not to help her. So it's one of those moments I wish was still in the movie, um, but um, in the theatrical version, but the one we get is still awesome because as she's being put into the back of that garbage box, Milton Burl's going like, come on, what are you just sitting around there for? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's had it up to here with his with his mother in law. Here's the thing: Ethel Merman is wonderful in this oh, yeah. movie, but she is a, a she is a uh, the mother load of annoying mother in laws. If you're going to talk about that stereotype, because well, she's like she's like the original monster in law, yeah, right? Yeah, that's that's very much what we're dealing with here. Is like if, if I mean, regardless of how outdated that stereotype can be for the mainstream, if you're talking about the characterization, Ethel Merman is the definition of it in this movie. Yes. Like they, they wrote the ultimate monster in law character. So much that's why Monster in Law with Jane Fonda failed is because they couldn't top Ethel Merman. Um and that's not a joke. Well, yeah, that's a sincere she's statement. So good. <laughs> it's she's so good. Yeah, it's she was a state Ethel Mer God damn it. Ethel Merman was she was a she was a singer she had a powerful voice. She was an Annie Get Your Gun Gypsy Hello Dolly. She, she was not too one to mess around with. If you wanted to go toe to toe with Ethel in terms of yeah. stealing a scene, bring it the fuck on because she's going to deliver a punch that will not fucking miss. Um, and so they all chase him up the top of this building, which then leads to scaffolding on the outside of this building that is clearly unstable and about to break and it does break as they're fighting to get the suitcase away from Culpepper it opens up and all the money flies down to an uh, observing crowd that's gathered around for a, a meeting and uh, Ethel Merman Dorothy Provine uh, and Edie Adams are all down at the ground level they are not allowed to participate in this gag which unfortunately kind of sucks because i would have loved to see ethel merman do what happens to everybody else here in this movie <laughs> just to add to her performance a little bit even the tiniest oh, bit. Yeah. even Edie adams could have done it too um but so what happens is so the fire department apparently gets word of this and they go in and they raise the ladder up to get them off of that scaffolding and the um uh, i wanted to make sure i got this correctly um so the person who climbs up the ladder, quote unquote, is Sterling Holloway, the voice of Winnie the Pooh. Um, Sterling Holloway <laughs> was also a well-known actor throughout many, many other films of the era, uh, not the least of which yeah. was Blonde Venus, uh, Picture Snatcher, um, where he's uncredited, but you can he's a, you can see his visage in there. Um, he's uh, he's in the Three Caballeros as Professor Holloway, so you, his voice is super recognizable, right? 
So like you can kind of hear it here, but he basically tells them, don't all get on the ladder at once. And he then they all try to do it, and he goes like, all right, I told you. You'll see what uh, happens. Yeah. And he just yep. – so Winnie the Pooh's going to let them die. and <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, and, yeah. And so um, and so they all get on there, and then uh, what happens is a special effects sequence that has never been uh, equaled in terms of how much is put together at this time to do it. At this time. And I'm not speaking of, like, obviously Star Wars does way more. You know, I'm not going to get into that debate There's because there's no debate. But the amount of things that are in this scene is kind of staggering. So, oh, dude, the for how they how they actually built that, like that whole setup yeah. is just it's insane. So the um, the visual effects of this film. Let me make Wasn't sure. Was it the same crew that did like uh, King Kong? Yes, it is the same crew did get, did King Kong. I just wanted to make sure I got it. Linwood Dunn um, and James B. Gordon um, and. You also have additional work with it with Farrakhan Edward, Jim Danforth, Marcel Delgado, and Willis H. O'Brien. Willis H. O'Brien was the animator of King Kong. He was the man who created and designed King Kong. Um, and he did visual uh, uncredited visual effects on this. But basically this scene is the creme de la creme of the visual effects work that Linwood and um, Gordon Danforth are all doing. Um, they um, this scene is composed of matted shots, um, uh, puppetry, stop motion, and uh, 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 trick shots to create the illusion that all of these actors, these comedic actors that you all know and love, are w- rocking back and forth in wide shots and medium wide shots on this ladder, yep. and the ladder itself is swaying back and forth due to the weight, oh. and it's. Like like a teeter totter, and it's breaking like, apart at the seams. So um, yeah. So yeah. as they are rocking back and forth, each of them is flung into different areas. So Peter Falk gets just get just gets thrown flat out into a uh, into a um, uh, fountain. How he survives, I don't know. Rod, Rochester, <laughs> I still don't know. He's the one where I'm just like, no, Peter Falk's fucking dead. I know I see him in the hospital at the end. What about Culpepper? Dead. Doesn't he get thrown into like a pet he store? He gets thrown into the pet store. But before that, Rochester gets thrown onto a statue of Abraham Lincoln, which, again, that's that's a whole discussion. Um, and uh, uh, Buddy Hackett, um, Mickey Rooney, and um, uh, Phil Silvers are all um, uh, bounced on electrical wire or, or um, on um yeah. On the electrical electrocuted. electrocuted by the wires before falling, <laughs> Dick Sean slides into a table, um, uh, and Milton Berle, Jonathan Winters, and um, uh, uh, I believe I'm trying to remember. Oh no, it, it is him and Culpepper too. That those three are hanging off of tree vines. Um, Winters mm-hmm. and Burl fall, but Spencer Tracy basically zip lines into a pet store, breaks open the pet store and is accosted by dogs who haven't escaped at this point. Um, so yeah, everybody gets thrown and tossed. So again, not only are we dealing with the miniature effects here with the stop motion, with the matte shots and the trick photography, we're also dealing with stuntmen who then are doing the things that happen at the ground level. So it's a, it's a editing feat. There is footage on the criterion disc of them working on that scene at a parking lot where they do the puppetry of it and basically they're walking back and forth the ladder and you can see at the base of it a puppeteer 
not only um, pulling the strings to create the movement, but also creating um, the movement of different figures waving their hands and arms. So Mm -hmm. this is a symmetry of visual techniques. Like this is, this to me is, it's it's like a symphony. This is what visual effects to me is like, and it's not, it's not a discount of, uh, or discreditation of CGI because CGI obviously is the next step evolution and rightfully so. But when we're talking about practical effects and visual effects, this is what it's meant to do is to uh, uh, ideally hide the fact that visual effects are even happening. If you're watching this film in 1963, you're not noticing there are puppets there, not realistically. You may notice that there are dummies falling onto the camera from the POV of the ground because it looks like they're clearly dummies. But everything (laughs) else is designed to make you like, I was watching it on a 4K TV today at a reasonable distance and I was and I had enough suspension of disbelief to be like no Milton Berle and Rochester are are on top of a ladder and they are about to die so you know that's <laughs> that's where, but that's where my mind can go I can't speak for other yeah. people but I would I would challenge people to watch that scene and be like put yourself in a position where you've never seen a Hobbit movie or a Star Wars movie and really understand that like this this was what visual effects was meant to do this was meant to well, create impossible things that seemed realistic like this now when we think visual effects and this was for a comedy yeah and and that's this is for a comedy yeah that is opening the cine was it the cinerama the cinerama dome in la yeah yeah and so this is this is again like now the, the 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 legacy that mad 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 world has with this is is that some of the best visual effects we still have today are the ones that are used just to fill in lines only not to create actual things it's why force awakens has some wonderful visual effects and animatronics and puppetry is because a lot of the cgi that they're doing for those effects is just to cover up lines and uh wires and such that's all it's meant to do um and that's why some of those visual effects look amazing is because all they're doing is filling in tiny moments they're not trying to create a whole character um yeah uh, and i would argue that some of the best visual effects that you can see in comedies are still done. If you, if they're done well, they're done physically and practically they aren't done with CGI. Um, but, um, and you know, like even, even Mel Brooks knows how to cue that because Mel Brooks will put visual effects into movies like a Spaceballs or a Robin Hood men in tights where like they're clearly there and he doesn't skimp mm-hmm. on it. They look much more dated than this movie, but they're still there. Like Spaceballs still looks pretty fine for what it is. Like they're using ILM stuff in their own way. Yeah, it still look, it still looks solid. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. the the one that still looks the most stilted is Pizza the Hut, but whatever. It's still Pizza the Hut. It's Dom DeLuise. I'm not gonna fucking. Pizza the. I'm not. I'm not gonna <laughs> argue. I'm not gonna argue with Dom DeLuise being in a pizza suit. I'm just not gonna do it, um, because it's the because Brandon, it's the best thing that's ever happened to this world and will continue to be. Um, <laughs> uh, long long live <laughs> King Mel. Anyway, Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise is awesome. He did a Marx Brothers documentary for the Warner Brothers collection that they have out, where he's describing his love of the Marx Brothers while eating uh, different pieces of food and then making an omelet in front of the Kramer crew. It's it's one of the most funniest things I've ever seen, Brandon, because it's like, I can't tell if he's being sincere or if he just doesn't give a fuck that a camera crew's there. It's like, look, you can talk to me about the Marx Brothers while I'm fucking eating. <laughs> he doesn't give a fuck. Nothing got in between him and a meal. No, Nothing. He's Dom DeLuise. Have you seen the movie Fatso? It's a, it's, 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 uh. it's a beautiful performance, man. That's Sam Bancroft directing him, too. That's not even Mel. Um, but anyway, um, so they all get flung away. They're all going to jail. The last scene of the movie 
is them all bandaged up in the worst possible ways imaginable. Like some of them, body look, cast. Some of them look like they're in medieval torture devices of the uh, of of, uh, of another era. <laughs> And uh, uh, they look terrible. And like I said, even Rochester's here again. Like that's example of like how far this cast went to where something like characters like Falk and Rochester's characters can extend to the very end of this and still be huge examples of it. But the big one is obviously Spencer Tracy is like completely immobilized, like completely immobilized, and he has this wonderful moment where he goes like, you know, more than likely because of what happened you guys will get off because the judge will have the book to throw at me have Mm -hmm. me to throw the book at and i wonder if i'll ever have something to laugh about because he never laughs in this movie once really he smiles but he never laughs uh and then uh as they're all meditating on this in prison garb walk ethel merman dorothy provine and evie adams ethel merman comes in and goes now listen here now as she's walking uh, Buddy Hackett's already thrown a banana peel on the ground, and uh, what <laughs> happens? But uh, Ethel Merman slips on that banana peel and falls right on her ass, and uh, everyone starts laughing. It's this rollicking tribute to insanity and how far this mad, mad, mad world has been uh, carried out. And then finally, Culpepper laughs. He finally laughs, and that's how we end our movie on a laugh kind of a beautiful way to end the ultimate comedy if that's what your goal is to make the ultimate comedy um and i'd argue that the final montage of them all laughing is has the i mean it's kind of obvious and on the nose it has the double meaning of like not only is this hilarious because ethel merman just fell on her ass but also it is the um it's the testament to this the psychology of this film is basically to unwind an audience for three hours to the point where they would be just as mad just as insane as the characters laughing on screen <laughs> uh oh yeah and it but it's also like sort of diffuses the idea that like these are terrible people and they got what they deserved yep. and, the, <laughs> and, the, and all they can do is just laugh at the pain that is caused by hurting one of them <laughs> like yeah, absolutely. Again, this movie is Stanley Kraber talking about humans, period. That's what the movie is about, human, period. Yep. Um, but that was It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. The movie opened up. Uh, the reception of the film is opened at the newly built Cinerama Dome at the time on November 7th, 1963. Uh, it premiered in the UK in December on the 2nd at the Col- Coliseum Cinerama Theater in London's West End. Uh, There's a large number of stars that appeared. Like It was just one of the biggest premieres assembled for a, a, the cast of a single film uh, and it became the third highest grossing film of 1963 and established itself easily in the hundred highest grossing films of all time when adjusted for inflation now this is a, again a pre-star wars world um mm-hmm. and estimated the rental figures of this film were 26 million it grossed 46 million dollars domestically and 60 60 million worldwide on just a budget of 9.4 in 1963 now because but the but the but the numbers on here because the costs were so high it only earned a profit of 1.25 1.25 million dollars so it was not yeah, um yeah, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a huge hit but it was an event and the problem with judging the financial success of this movie ultimately lies in the fact that not many movies are performing well in this uh this decade um they are being outpaced by television they are being outpaced mm-hmm. by other things going on in the world namely 
Um, we're fighting for civil rights and freedoms. There are other things going on in the world. Movies are not the escape they used to be. And movies at this time are not truly reflecting values of the era that are emerging. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons the American New Wave is allowed to succeed as much as it does is because it is the genre of film or the wave of film that suggests to the audience, hey, we're going to talk about you, the people, and not worry about what we think you are. We're going to show you what mm -hmm. you are. And it's a mad, mad, mad world. As beautiful it is at pointing out the human condition, it is a fantasy version of that. It is not a realistic version of it. Um, well, I mean, it can't be. No, because then you the, would be a thriller or a horror film. <laughs> well, and, and the title tells you all you need to know. It's like if you sit down like expecting to see logical people or like logical characters, yeah, this is not the movie for you. No, no. It's funny is that Corinne from real nerds podcast did um, give her point, her two cents on this film as going like, I didn't like it as much as I'd like to movie like the great race or around the world in 80 days. And I, and I, and I don't disagree with her because that is what basically the movie is pitching itself as the difference being that, this film is darker than both of those and carries much more thematic well, yeah. substance by comparison. It doesn't matter if the great race or around the world in 80 days is much more enjoyable, which I'd argue they're not, but um, you know, they're the, the, the mad, mad, mad world is tapping into themes by way of every single form of comedy that you can possibly do. Um, now here's, here's something we should talk about though is the critical reception of this film because um, remember that guy who made uh, that statement to <laughs> Bosley Crowther or, or to uh, to Stanley yes. Kramer? Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. He wrote that the film is everything down to the down to redundant that its exact extravagant title suggests. It's a wonderfully crazy and colorful collection of chase comedy, so crowded with plot and people that it almost splits the seams of its huge cinerama packing and its three hour and twelve minute length. Um, so <laughs> he liked it. Um, or at least that's the impression that I get when reading about it. Um, he's, yeah. it seems like he's, you know, if he has anything against it, it's that it's so much packed in, but Hey, you know, Bosley Crowther, you know, owes Stanley Kramer some bet money. If there was ever a, you know, financial stake in that, um, variety stated that there are a number of ho truly spectacular action sequences and the stunts that have been performed seem incredible. The automobile capers are some of the most thrilling and daring on the screen. Max Senate, notwithstanding. Now that's a high compliment, especially if you're going to draw yeah. a comparison to the Max Senate days. Um, and, but he did say that certain pratfalls and sequences are unnecessarily overdone to the point where they begin to grow tedious. Now I have issue with that because I am always of the opinion that if you keep trying to push the gag at least in the physical room, further and further, it becomes funnier. Now, comedy is subjective. <laughs> it's not going to be a definite. It People is. laugh for different reasons at different things. Yes. It's why whenever I send you material on a script when I'm writing comedies with you that I go, keep in mind this might be garbage. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, because I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, it is very subjective, I mean, right? Shit. Especially when you're sort of just not just being writing like a straight comedy like this. Like, like you said, Stanley Kramer, you know, putting a lot of actual, like, messaging into this movie. Yeah. And, you know, like, uh, I think you're, you said your friend Corinne mm -hmm. was talking about how, you know, she didn't like this as much as the other movies that she had seen that sort of dabble in the same, like, race kind of idea. Right. I mean, and it's because, like, yeah, this movie deals with greed. Greed is peppered through this entire film. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like to, like, you know, admit or... You know, shine a light to the fact that like a lot of people are greedy. Yeah, and 
like that drives a lot of people and that's what makes this movie so great to me is that it's a comedy that really just lives inside like this dark idea which to me like it 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 draws from that dark idea in the way that we can all reflect on in our own way in terms of how we view our own condition how we view the world through a ridiculous lens um it's it's why like to me like not to bring it back to my obsession with mr benny but jack's cameo in this film is actually kind of a nice little cherry on top of the movie because of what his comedy represented to a certain extent and also what this movie represents as a thematic through line of the the uh the the faults and the frailties of man and uh, mankind itself these are Mm-hmm. Everybody is brought down to the lowest common denominator all in the search of a suitcase full of money. That is what is it about. That's why Rat Race doesn't work is because it tries to do way too much and doesn't hit the point of this film. And arguably, Mad 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 World is much more basic than what Rat Race does. So it's amazing that the more basic version will always work because it doesn't try to overstuff shit. This movie is three is close to three hours in its current form for the mass mass public, and yet it's so simple. It's not trying to overdo anything. Its simplicity delivers the message. Um, in the mm-hmm. review that Bosley Crowther wrote, uh, he said, um, uh, "When its producer Stanley producer director Stanley Kramer started to do this film, which had its official public screening last night at the Warner Theater, he said he wanted to make it a comedy to end all comedies." I'm glad to say he hasn't quite succeeded, but he has certainly made it one to reckon with. For he and nimble scriptwriter William Rose, who wrote Genevieve and High Dry and Lady Killers and other interesting British comedies, have gleefully gathered virtually all all the surefire slapstick comedy tricks and chase routines that were patiently developed in silent film days. That's another thing about this movie is that it's not just the wordplay. It's not just the delivery of the, the lines in this film. It is, this is very much... A silent film comedy in a lot of areas and a lot of sequences thanks to that stunt work thanks to those visual effects this is very true this is a very visual piece um and um you know and you know not everybody um loved the film uh, you know obviously uh it it the washington post richard l co said yes it's furious fast and funny and it's also vast vulgar and vexatious because kramer has not given us one sympathetic character and because it's shown in cinerama and with all due respect to richard l crow um time has proven that the fact that they are unsympathetic is the reason we want to watch this movie um, absolutely yeah like i mean i mean almost it's almost as important seeing like you know like a character in film that you idolize like oh that's what i want to be it's almost as important to see characters where you're like i don't want to be that yeah and and that's and that's that's kind of why the new wave is a good thing for the golden age of hollywood in retrospect in the respect that we can still enjoy these films because the ones that do uh happen before their time do manage to stick out to us it's why citizen kane still works you know like citizen kane Mm -hmm. still works because it is about a terrible man but we are fascinated by watching that terrible man um i mean like this movie still works because at the at the heart of it we're all a bunch of greedy bastards who want one thing or another um hopefully we try not to be like i mean you and i certainly try to not be but we 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 um uh there's a 
uh, uh, Louis Black has always said, like everybody's <laughs> an a- everybody's an asshole in their own special way. I think is the the line. That's right. Yeah. And so like that, and that that's a good way to sum up the the end of this film. The movie was nominated for several Oscars. Uh, it was nominated for Best Cinematography, Color, uh, Ernest Laszlo, Best Original Score, Ernest Gold, Best Original Song, It's a Mad 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 World, with lyrics by Mac David, Best Film Editing, which I'd argue it should have won. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Gordon Sawyer for sound and Walter Elliott for sound effects. It was also nominated <laughs> for the Golden Globes for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Stanley Kramer, and Best Actor, Jonathan Winters. And huh. I'm kind of sad that Jonathan Winters didn't win that award, but whatever. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, that's a bummer. But the movie did win for Best Sound Effects, Walter Elliott. Uh, it has been recognized by the AFI uh, in the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs at number 40, which is interesting that Stanley Kramer wanted to make the comedy to end all comedies, and yet what he ended up doing is inspiring so many more comedies to follow his footsteps in their own way. Um, oh, dude, absolutely. Like, I think the, like, beyond this movie, the biggest legacy is, like, kind of, like, what this movie strived to do. Like, mixing genres and just creating, like, this sprawling... Like epic because this is very epic. Yeah, and it's a comedy. It's the only. It's saying that comedies can be this, and that's and that's the thing that's interesting. The, so the point of the show, as I pitched to you initially, is is that we're trying to talk about what what is carried on today uh, from the film that we discuss. And what's interesting is that we've talked about a lot of stuff that carries on, whether it's visual effects, major casting, etc. What we haven't talked about, and we also talked about what doesn't work today, whether it's, you know, like certain depictions and uh, conversations about women or masculinity or whatever the case may be in that realm. Um, We even had to talk about Rochester, which I'm glad we were able to have because that's a really that's a conversation that needs to keep happening. Um, But um, but the big thing is that when it comes to comedy, the thing that Mad 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 World does to me is, is that it challenges other comedies to be just as audacious. Um, but also what's funny is, is that no one has ever topped what it does specifically. So what's funny is, is that it is the only movie of its kind that did it the right way for a lot of reasons. Now, uh, like, uh, like I said before, there are other imitations of this movie, like, um, who's minding the mint and stuff like that, that go for it. And I think that they're funnier in their own respective ways, but mad, mm-hmm. mad, mad world is a culmination of just the right ingredients for me personally. Um, well, and you can see it's like fingerprint on a bunch of other things, whether it's like from like, you know, planes, trains and automobiles where like, like, you know, you can look at that movie and be like, all right, this, I can see where maybe, you know, if they were a fan of Stanley Kramer, you have to, you know, if and the, maybe a little inspired there and the, and, um, and the nature of ensemble look, casting dude, look, Judd Apatow. Yeah. Yeah, dude, absolutely. And then even like, you know, um, oh yeah, Apatow for sure. Like, just getting like every like comedy name that you can find. And even like, I mean, look, look at it like this, right? Uh, even Adam Sandler with his like Happy Madison stuff. Yes, he's constantly right. getting, while it's mostly just as like friends, but like they're still all like prominent names in comedy. Yeah. Um, and like even look at like genre blending right like with comedies look at ghostbusters yep that's very much so like they're the mad mad world is an action comedy in a lot of ways and dude hangover the hangover yeah, movies hangover, like yeah. the insanity that gets injected into comedies and also being shot very cinematically yeah like it's a mad 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 world did yeah um, which is funny because we've talked like, about uh todd phillips and his more recent efforts with joker and we've had mm-hmm. our we've had our own debates on on that like we're not 
I mean, like, I don't know if your mind has changed. Like, I've I've softened my opinion on Joker, but I will say this about Todd Phillips. Anytime I went to one of his comedies, I was never not on the floor um, because there's a lot of stuff that he does, both in the visual and in the comedic, that are blending so well that make make it different than anything I see usually. Like, I like Apatow a lot, but he isn't as visually mm-hmm. interesting as Phillips is um, in terms of if I'm looking at these two side by side. Um, like the hangover part three is kind of a strangely very visual movie. Um, not just mm-hmm. from the gags, but oh, just yeah. the way it's shot. Like it's a very dark comedy, even darker than the first two. <laughs> um, oh, dude, it's in there. They get exponentially darker as they go, yeah. which is like, but yeah, like you were saying, you know, Todd Phillips, like for me, like, I don't like, you know, everything and you know, all the movies, but, um, I, I have so many oh shit moments watching Todd Phillips' work, which is awesome. You get a guttural reaction. Yep, and that's kind of the 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 amazing thing about Mad 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 World as a film and what you see connecting the dots is that like it it was kind of a warning signal to be like go big or go home and comics comics and comedy takes it take it in their own ways, whether it's through stand up deciding to you know, break taboos and barriers on that or comedy films to be like, let's going big. Let's do big stunts in our movie. Like blues brothers is the best example of this. Oh my God. Blues brothers is a, is the only film that I can think of that from a stunt and visual perspective matches this movie because of how much shit it gets away with that car pile, the car pile, the the car pile up (laughs) in blues brothers is equal to the amount of destruction alone in certain sections of it's a mad 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 world in certain respects because of like landis is a genius at knowing how to go big or go home with those things it's why he's good at that genre blending as we've said again because american werewolf in london does that for the horror movie and Mm -hmm. coming to america has its own form of that like there's a lot that they are able to uh, draw upon from something like Mad Mad World, even if they don't say it out loud. I'm like, yeah, but the DNA might be here, guys. My, I might be drawing conclusions, but that's what I see. Again, we are talking about yeah. comedy, which is subjective, yes. but that is kind of the the point of all that. But um, to wrap it all up, Stanley Kramer, um, <laughs> after this movie, uh, he would go on to uh, a big success uh, with uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, after that, he would um, make um, one, two. He would make about seven more films and then retire. And he passed away uh, in two thousand and one. Um, he wrote a memoir. Um, he uh, won the Irving G. Tholberg Award in um, nineteen sixty one, two years before he made Mad Mad World. Um, and um, there was an award created, um, the Stanley Kramer Award, at the Producers Guild. To be awarded to the recipients who work whose work dramatically illustrates prov- provocative social issues, and again, we just watched a movie where Ethel Merman falls on her ass in a banana peel at the end. So Stanley Kramer was not only able to send a message to the world about how to create be- create a better world for ourselves, he also taught us how to laugh at the worst sides of ourselves. Um, so with that, Brandon, do you have any final thoughts that you want to add to this discussion? Which if we draw it out long enough, we'll be as long as the theatrical release of this film. <laughs> um, you know, just tying it back to what I said before about like, you know, like let's say Ghostbusters or um, planes, trains, and automobiles. Like a movie isn't like, you know, it's success. Again, success is sort of like subjective too. I mean, just beyond like, you know, monetary, um, 
in box office wise, right? Like the legacy of a movie is sort of like, at least to me, what determines whether it's really a success or not. Um, and I feel like, you know, this movie sort of like changed the narrative a little bit and changed the way that like comedies were shot. Um, I, and I, get, I know in the studio system, like, you know, there was, you know, attention to like, you know, actually having like very filmic qualities attached to comedies. But this movie was sort of like, you know, let's take the best way of shooting action, the best way of like creating like suspense. And we put all that into like a comedic package. Mm -hmm. And you have a film that's like, it's a film. It's like, you know, not to quote like, you know, Bowfinger, um, where Eddie Murphy's like, we're not trying to make a film. We're trying to make a movie. Um, Like this is a film. It's not just like a movie. It's not just like a throwaway, like, you know, a a dumb comedy. Again, there's a place for that too, right? Art versus commerce. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And somehow Stanley, you know, put together a comedy that had like a great message along with like just superb filmmaking back. Like, you know, behind it, which I think is very, very important, and, and I think underappreciated. And yet, it'll never be perfect in his eyes because, once again, should have added that fucking fifth mat in there. I swear to God, Absolutely. damn Christ, motherfucker! Ah, why didn't I do it? I'm just, uh, oh God, I'm gonna go make guess who's coming to dinner. I'm only good at making dramas at this point. Jesus Christ, Stanley, get it together! You couldn't make the perfect comedy. You had to make the almost perfect comedy. God yeah. damn it. Uh, that's Stanley Kramer, ladies and gentlemen. Um, anyway, though, um, I will say, though, that um, as far as the cast is concerned um, with It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, I'm, all of the uh, members of the cast um, are unfortunately passed away, um, mostly because, you know, time has passed. <laughs> um, but the remaining uh, cast member is Barry Chase. Now, Barry Chase is interesting. She is the woman dancing in her bra, uh, in her underwear, and with Dick Sean and uh, at his pad, and giving that deadpan look to the face as she's grooving to that music. <laughs> and she has something amazing <laughs> in the film: is that because she never changes her ex- expression, everything that Dick Sean's doing is immediately less funny compared to her sticking to that deadpan look. <laughs> so it's pretty remarkable how Barry <laughs> Chase stole Dick Sean's thunder in that scene. Um, and, uh, that's, it's just a, that's a hell of a legacy to have within that. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's still around. She's 87. Um, she was at the Q and a at the Cinerama dome, um, at the Academy screening at the last 70 millimeter road show where they had amongst other people, the script supervisor of this film who basically said that the scripts were, there were two scripts. One was the dialogue and one was the action and both were the size of telephone books. Um, so, Oh my God. Yeah. Dude, that's crazy. That's it's insane as what that is. Um, and, uh, at that reunion panel, which you can see on the criterion, you also have Jonathan Winters was still around. This was a year before he passed. Mickey was still around. Um, actually Mickey makes everybody in the audience, um, uh, have a moment of silence for Ernest Borgnine who had passed away, which is a really odd thing to stop your Q and A to honor Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> I mean, I th- yeah, right. I think I, just, I, just a little bit. I think I might just it, it, God for God 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 forbid if I ever win a major award in my life, I'll just be like, guys, this is a wonderful award, but can we just take five minutes to acknowledge the death of Ernest Borgnine? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be my Oscar. That'll be our, our. That should be our Oscar speech. If we both get up there, just feel like, look, this is nice and all. Whatever, thank you. We need to acknowledge That's that okay. Ernest Borgnine died seventy years ago. <laughs> well, you can do that, and I'll I'll mention G.G. Allen, and the people will be like, oh, what? Oh. 
<laughs> the, who's oh, that guy? Both going I'll do a quick Google search and be like, that guy was naked and shit in his hand and threw it at his at his fans. Brandon, we're both going guy's... we're both going to hell for different respective reasons, just like every character in its mad, mad, mad world except for Dorothy oh. Provine. <laughs> um Gigi Allen was insane. Yeah. Todd Phillips made a documentary about him that is certainly fascinating. Um but anyway, that's gonna thank you again uh, sorry, thank you again, Brandon, for sitting down for close to three hours now to chat about it's a mad, mad, mad world. It's an honor and a privilege to have you sit down and talk about this film that gave me joy as a kid and i and obviously did for you too so now we got to kind of relive those memories of this film and also tell people why um it this is an important movie over the course of the length of the film itself it's basically a commentary for the film at this point um yeah so, i mean we almost did that I mean. <laughs> yeah that's by the time i get down to editing it it might be commentary length but um, but that's going to wrap it up for Yesteryear at Ballyhoo Review. Uh, keep checking us out for episodes. We're going to be coming out twice a week, it seems like. Um, on the next episode, um, I should be having a discussion about Ilya Kazan um, or Ooh. David Lean, one of the two. It will depend on scheduling, but Ilya Kazan and David Lean are your clues for possible next episodes. Um, but until then, that has been the Ballyhoo Review for this evening, guys. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Having any trouble? Yes! And we don't need any help from you! What? Mother, please! Ah!